Yes. So uh, AWA, as you know, is a very reputable uh, nonprofit leading aerospace membership-based professional organization. Our president right now is Ms. Laura McGill, executive director, Mr. Daniel Dunbarker, and I'm uh, Ken Louie, I'm the section chair, uh, continuing uh, Dr. Jeffrey Puchel's great effort and leadership. Uh, just a few words, AWA is a great uh, national and international, national organization with international presence. Uh, so it's a lot of members, it's a very long history. Uh, so please look up online and uh, join us. If any question about membership, uh, please uh, let us know. Uh, I don't want to go over all this. I just glance over and this is our council members from different aerospace industry, education, uh, or just government or uh, many things. Uh, there's a lot of benefit join AWA. I'll just jump over and uh, uh, just let you know, Los Angeles Las Vegas section is very kind of uh, we are blessed to have uh, uh, many vibrant aerospace activity in this area. Uh, so uh, again, I don't spend too much time here, but it is a very exciting area, uh, existing and the new companies or you know activities. And then we keep doing events like today uh, to keep everybody connected, uh, to understand AIWA membership benefits and uh, uh, to keep people interested. So this is our upcoming event. Uh, you can look up our website or we can talk about it later with newsletter opportunities. Uh, we also put a recording and po podcast online. So the speaker uh, for uh, our talk today, the Domain Strategies Initiative for AWA. Uh, the first one is Mr. Ming Chen. Uh, you can see their full amazing bio in our emails and online, so I don't repeat everything. Uh, basically, uh, Mr. Chen is our AWA domain lead for aeronautics. He's a senior director of Fry Technologies. Uh, he retired from General Atomics Aeronautical Systems. And the second speaker is Mr. Scott uh, Falls. Uh, he's our domain lead for aerospace R&D. And our associate fellow, uh, highly respected, uh, he retired from Lockheed Martin Space System, and he's now the, uh, he's, has, he's his own uh, consulting services, as you can see. Uh, the third speaker, maybe she will join us later, is Miss Julie Van Cleek. Uh, she is the AIWA domain lead for space. He's our AIWA fellow, also highly respected. He's an aerospace consultant, he's vice, vice president of advanced space and launch system business. Also retired from LJ Rocketdyne. Hopefully she can still join us later on. Uh, so without further ado, let's uh, welcome uh, Mr. Ming Chen and uh, Mr. Scott Falls to start uh, your presentation. Uh, so do you, Ming, would you, or Scott, would you be able to show your slide or you want to show, want me to show it? Um, I think it might be better for you to show it. Okay, I'm doing it quickly now. Great, thank you. Yeah. yeah. So Scott, do you wanna start off or you want me to start off? Um, I'm happy to, if you, I'm happy to start. Yeah. Yeah, go ahead. So wait for him to bring up the chart. And then... So um, while we're, oh, there we go. <clears throat> so this is actually, um, we, so Ming and Julie and I have been on the job now 
um, it'll be one year on October 1st. So we started October 1st, 2021. Um, and the this is a, a strategy that uh, Dan Dumbacher, the executive director, has basically was starting to formulate over the last few years. Um, and then he finally got a chance to kick it off. And he, he approached uh, Ming and Julie and I about uh, serving in this capacity. Um, we gave a um, we gave a uh, this this last week we actually had to give an update to the uh, to the TAD the Technical Activities Division um, and so we're just using uh, many of the charts we we're using some of the same charts we use for that for this activity so why don't we go to the next chart I think the um, I. Hopefully by now you guys have heard about the uh, the domain strategy. You know Dan Dan Dumbacher talks about it all the time, but ultimately uh, what he wanted to do, and kind of in a nutshell, he wanted to make sure that in terms of the activities that the volunteers are doing inside the institute. Um, is that it? We want to make sure it's balanced between mission perspective and technology perspective. You know, one of the really great things about AIAA is the the immense, the great depth that they have in terms of the technologies and and the you know all aspects of aerospace systems. But when you're today, when you're looking at um, kind of the high, when you're trying to think about what's, what's really kind of exciting happening inside of uh, the full aerospace community, you know, sometimes you have to look at it from the mission perspective to get a, a better perspective than strictly from the technology. And, and it felt like over time, we've kind of lost some of that balance. And he's hoping, my sense is he's hoping that the, the domain leads will help kind of uh, rebalance some, you know, just nudge, create some um, gentle pressure to get to more of a balance of mission and technology. So, and as part of that, um, for each of these domains, and again, there's aeronautics, space and R&D, Dan really wants to get this kind of multi-year vision. Um, and so when we came on board, we actually, each of us decided that, you know, the right way to, kind of start that roadmap process was to identify um, three, four, or five key topics that we thought would be very important for the Institute to start, start put more attention on. And so that's, that's kind of how we started. We started with these kind of key topics. And then with each of those key topics, we generated a fairly extensive set of subtopics. And we then cast those in terms of, of these uh, fishbone diagrams. That, and Ming, Ming had actually been the one to suggest that as a, a kind of a, an appropriate way to visualize so people could look at it and get a sense of where those are. And so I don't think we've got any examples of those. And Ken, we can send those along to you later for you to share with your, uh, with your members. Okay, thank uh, you. And Ming, Ming, did you want to add anything to this chart? No, not really. I think you covered it all. Um, it's, it's you know, the only thing is we started this effort um, 
a year ago. And as Scott said, we came quickly came to the realization that we needed to be pretty much integrated with each other more because the marketplace is becoming more integrated. And so many of the topics that we are going to show is, you know, at first it will be started by the do specific domains, uh, domain areas. But as time goes by, we will start integrating um, uh, into each other. As an example, sustainability really is an integral part of aeronautics and space. And, um, you know, autonomy is very much an integral part of all three domains. So yep. you know, we are looking to do that um, in the near future, start doing that in the near future. Okay. Oh, by the way, I just heard from Julie. She won't be able to make it. The, they're, they're just talking to the doctor now, so it won't happen. So, okay, let's go to the next chart then. And um, so this actually now lays out the current set of key topics for, for the, um, the three domains. Um, Ming, I'll let Ming, why don't you talk to the, the your four and then I'll talk to my R&D ones. Yeah, so, so basically um, each one of us looked into our own respective domain areas and we kind of came out um, um, and, and kind of identified these areas as kind of the most prevalent topics that are going on in the current environment and possibly the the most um i guess pressing need to have those uh topics um being in the conversation within aiaa so what i've identified is um carbon emissions decarbonization and sustainability as one of them uh, advanced air mobility, which includes you know, regional mobility and air mobility, certification, and hypersonics, supersonics. Scott, over to you. Yep. Okay. And so for mine, and, and, and then, by the way, one of the things when I first took on this role, you know, was, you know, the, it seemed it's a bit strange to have a separate domain for R&D than from, you know, from space and then from aeronautics. But, and so part of what I was looking for are certainly picking key topics that would support, support, strongly support both of those other domains, space and aeronautics. Um, and, and my number one uh, topic was what I'm now calling transformative systems engineering. Um, and it's, it's really taking a look at um, all of the things that are kind of bubbling in the community, like, uh, you know, digital twin, model-based systems engineering, you know, how can we do, what, what can AA, AIAA do to both uh, increase the, the pace of adoption of those, of those uh, capabilities? Um, 
Did we lose the charts? Okay. And um, and and in addition, though, are you know also making sure that we bring along tools for like as we're as we're seeing more use of kind of AI, adaptive systems, machine learning in systems, can we make sure we've got system engineering tools to support that? Um, and, and, and a key interest of mine, because this is where I've, I've actually spent most of my career, is this whole area of kind of human machine teaming. So can we do a better job of actually analyzing, doing the system analysis of the human machine team? Um, the human machine system. So, so that's what we're doing. In fact, uh, we'll talk about it a little bit later, but we're just kicked off a, a, a task force in this area of transformative system engineering. Um, autonomy, I mean, and, and Glenn Cullors on the, on the call, he actually ran a, an autonomy summit last year in November and is currently organizing a major um, working group for defense. Um, the defense forum in autonomy, but we just know that's going to be such a pro have such a profound impact on the few all, all future aerospace systems. And so we want to make sure that AIAA is doing all they can to um, kind of both respond to the immediate needs as well as start to anticipate some of the farther out needs of how we're going to be dealing with autonomy and a machine learning. Um, and then uh, as we as we get to greater capabilities in terms of digital um, avionics, digital systems, it turns out you know there's some um, there's some challenges on the assurance side, as I think we're all aware. But there's also some opportunities on the on the resilience side. So you know how can we do a better job of of um, kind of wrapping our arms around those two concepts and dealing with them effectively? And then and then the last topic for me is in the area of uh, advanced manufacturing and advanced materials. And I, I like to talk about that when I, my first year in college was when The Graduate came out, the movie, The Graduate, you know, and it, it the, the favorite line there, I have one word for you, um, plastics. And uh, even though I've been in information technology all my career, um, the, the opportunities when you are able to bring um, both, both new materials, multifunctional materials, as well as these new uh, manufacturing techniques like additive manufacturing, um, it, it opens up the world in terms of some of the things you can, you, you're able to accomplish, you know. And one of the projects I was running when I was at Lockheed uh, was a project called PrintSat, you know, so we were actively exploring what it would take to print, a, just simply print a satellite um, that would include embedding, uh, um, you know, electronics in, into, the, into the structure itself. And then, um, so since Julie's not gonna be able to join us, um, you can see the um, topics that she has. And, and these are topics that actually um, go back to the, uh, that were kind of identified when the Ascend conference was first stood up. Um, and I, given that you're the LA Las Vegas chapter, I'm assuming you're, you're uh, deeply, closely connected to the Ascend conference. Um, so, but anyways, there, so you can see um, space traffic management and, and the former um, 
executive director Sandy Magnus is is leading the activity in that in that area. Um, certainly, space sustainability and space exploration. I do like this fourth bullet, this concept of outpacing the space threat. You know, how do we get out in front of that? And then and then just better understanding this 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 kind of what the space economy is going to be. Um, so they and she has quite a few activities going on um, as part of the. You have the, we've got the major Ascend conference coming up in um, at the next month. Actually, it's not that it's coming at the end of October, and um, but they also have a pretty regular Ascend, uh, smaller Ascend events, and then and um, earlier this week there was an Ascend event on nuclear propulsion that was quite interesting. So let's go to the next chart and. So I think what we're going to do is uh, talk a little bit about um, one of the ways we're organized. Now that we have these key topics, what we're doing is actually, um, and we've probably talked about the key topics. Um, I don't need to brief this chart. You can, it's, you can just see it's got good, it tries to put a little bit more specificity to what a key topic is and what a subtopic is. But now that we have these key topics, what we want to do is how do we how do we actually start moving out and starting to create activity around those key topics? And we're doing that now in the context of these domain task force, which is the next chart. <clears throat> so um, so so in inside of AAA, there is a, there's a, we have they have a rich set of technical committees and integration committees which are, are long-standing um, groups, meaning that you stand them up and they're, they're basically are, they go on um, uh, forever. And what we're talking about with the domain task force is a, um, will be a much shorter duration. And we're thinking six months to 12 months. Um, we, we find, Basically, the domain—it's the job of the domain lead—is to recruit a lead for that task force. Um, and Ming will talk about. Ming has actually started up two of these already. Um, he can talk. He'll talk in more detail about that. Um, but we want, as it was with all things at AIAA, we want this to be outcome focused, and so we want to kind of identify um, uh, important outcomes that will move the community forward that we that can be accomplished in a six to 12 month time frame um, and you know if necessary we'll they'll, they'll there may be needs to recharter you know to give it some new focus and so that'll generate some new outcomes but we'll, we'll cross that bridge when we get to it um, and ultimately it may be the case that um, at some point, the domain task force might actually uh, evolve into a, a new committee. Um, but again, that's, um, we'll, we wanna be careful about that. So just because at some point they've got a lot of committees and it's, uh, it's once those committees are formed, it's hard to keep them focused on relevant topics. So next chart. I think the next chart talks a little bit about um, how, we, how we viewed, um, how do we um, identify the membership for the uh, for these task forces? And we were just talking about these last, this week. We think, in terms of a core team, we're expecting the core team to be somewhere in the 
10 to 20 uh, members. Um, we're obviously gonna, we're gonna recruit heavily from the tech committees and integration outreach committees, um, as well as from the sections. And that this is one of the reasons we wanted to be talking to you today that we expect that for some of these domain topics, there may be um, people then at the sections that aren't currently active in some of the committees that might wanna be come active in these, these task forces. We wanna also reach out to the associate fellows and fellows um, and, and in general, make sure we, we, we actually try to reach out to the full AIAA membership. And, 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 but it's not just AIAA members. And we actually expect that for some of these key topics that may not be traditionally core to what AIAA does, that we, we will actually have to get people from, from outside AIAA. And, and we think this will be a good thing long-term because if we're successful, those people that get involved in the um, in these task forces may become more engaged and start to and, and join AIAA. Um, we're we're trying to uh, balance uh, technical expertise with uh, enthusiasm, commitment, and passion. <clears throat> um, certainly, always want to uh, make sure that we get kind of a balance uh, and dem you know, balanced demographically, whether it's um, gender, geography, um, where you are in your career, um, as well as, um, you know, traditional aerospace and, and, and um, kind of some of the new, new entrants, you know, things like SpaceX. Um, and um, so anyways, that's, that's, that's where we're, how we're going about it now. We, we, are, we do wanna make sure that we get um, heavy involvement by young professionals as well and provide opportunities for them to actually take on some leadership roles as part of these uh, task forces. So I wanted to make sure that uh, we, we kind of talked to this and Ming, do you want, did, was there anything you wanted to add to this chart? No, I think you covered everything. Um... As I said, uh, as, as Scott said, um, we the membership is is pooling from not only AIAA membership. We're also trying to pool in um, adjacent market um, or adjacent technology or um, um, membership, such as ASC and and EATS and IEEE. So if they are, of course, if they are relevant or if they have the re relevant um, expertise in the area. Um, so, and all, on top of that, we're, we're very much wanting to have young professionals in the group more because they have um, fresh ideas that we would like to, uh, we would like to as, as, um, as domain leaders like to tap into more because you know the fresh ideas are the ones that are going to be the future. Um, so that's what we're looking for. I think okay. it's the next chart. Yep, it should be your. Um... Okay, so so um, as you can see, there are, we're standing up. Um, starting to stand up domain task forces. 
Um, in the aeronautics area, I've stood up advanced air mobility and carbon emission sustainability. I'm working on certification right now. And Scott is working on the transformative systems engineering one and the autonomous vehicle system one. I think Scott is also working on that. Um, and I think he's trying to figure out how to continue that on. Right. Uh, Julie is standing up the space traffic management and also cislunar propellant depots. So next chart. So for the advanced mobility, we stood that up. Um, uh, we had a kickoff at the, at the aviation in Chicago about um, a month and a half ago. And you know our charter is to uh, help relieve uh, congestion and improve quality of life in the urban environment um, through a transformative airborne technology transport for people and goods and to destinations to different destinations and also underserved destinations. So, you know, to get this thing going, there's got to be a, a transformative ecosystem, um, which requires a certain amount of scaling uh, for, to, to meet, that, meet that capability. So AIAA wants to be in this role as a as a facilitator to do the to to bring the the stakeholders together to help further the communications and the networking, and so we of course want to provide that uh, through the alignment of of AIAA to promote AAM. We want to ensure that, you know, uh, it, we understand under this task force, we understand the landscape of what's going on within the industry, government, and academia. And as Scott said, we want to look at the mission, um, mission areas and also the technical areas in, uh, within AIAA and find out or, or integrate those two areas and identify gaps that we think we need to fill or that, that AIAA is not filling right now. And from that, we wanna create a roadmap to provide a strategic plan for AIAA to move forward with such that they can come up with products that, that um, is useful to the to the membership. And these products can be, you know, papers or policies or webinars or discussion groups, that type of stuff. We, you know, AIAA does not have the traditional products as, as most people think of, but it's more of a, a, you know, communicative and networking product. The chair of the uh, task force is Virginia Stauffer. She's from uh, Transformal Technologies. We have members from TAD and, and IOD and, and also um, uh, 
integration and outreach councils. Um, we have organizations such as Jaunt Mobility, Bombardier, NASA, and also the, the universities. As I said, we launched uh, June the 28th, and we're starting to identify the gaps um, and we're starting to, from those gaps, we're starting to form problem statements that we will go and um, work through such that we can report that out in at SciTech uh, 2023. Um, <clears throat> so that's the air mobility one. Um, it is on engage. Um, you can, you can, um, basically get into engage and look up air mobility task force and you can get into the conversation within that task force engage site and a lot of the information about the task force is in, on that site also so next chart So the next chart is the Carbon Emissions and Sustainability Task Force. Um, again, we're looking at aligning industry uh, um, efforts to drive to the net zero carbon emission by 2050. Um, we're looking at um, the landscape of efforts under AIAA across the industry, government, and academia. Again, looking for gaps. Uh, within what AIAA is doing and creating a roadmap for that. Um, <clears throat> our initial scope right now is commercial aviation, more because that is that is really where we have most of the efforts going on and and the and the um, majority of the, I guess the issues that are being focused on. And of course, um, through the aviation, commercial aviation arena, we're looking at impacts to climate change by reducing emissions. So the person who is running the, um, the task force is Ellen Ebner. She is from the Boeing company. And again, we have members within the TAD and IOD organization. Um, we have Boeing, Airbus, and uh, Pratt and & Whitney and Rolls-Royce in there. We have FAA, NASA. We're looking also, oh, and also we do have an airliner in there, Delta. We're also pursuing Lufthansa right now. Um, the airline industry is a little bit interesting industry. They are very much um, into, um, I guess, um, alignment with with the regulatory um uh, i guess each country's regulatory um rules and so they they want to ensure that if they do join an organization like ours or 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 do work within the uh organization like ours that they meet that the the ruling the regulatory rulings so they are, so at least Lufthansa is 
is looking into that right now. So we hope that they will join us in the near future. Um, Georgia Tech, MIT, Stanford is is in the in the uh, um, task force, and we launched it um, July uh, July twenty first. Our midpoint presentation will be at SciTech, and um, our conclusion or our our final products will be will be presented at um, Aviation twenty uh, twenty three. Um, okay. Okay. There is a. I just think that there is a question that is popped up about um, CO two um, that I just noticed. Oh, okay. So what I mean by carbon emission is basically the carb. Uh, yeah, carbon dioxide. Um, um, uh, carbon emissions of carbon dioxide and 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 spent uh, carbon fuels and and that type of stuff. So anything that is basically heavy items and in reality it's more it's more emissions, not necessarily carbon emissions, but it's really more emissions. Um, we just kind of said decarbonization. If that helps. <clears throat> um why not say that um well i wasn't the one who created the title aaa created the title so in reality you know we could change it to emissions So um, I think that's it for 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 this chart. And again, um, I am looking at standing up a certification task force. I'm in the middle of doing that right now. Um, it takes a you know certification is a very big subject, so it's taking a little longer to get that going. Hopefully, I can get that started um, by the end of October, early November. So I guess with that, um, Scott, you're next. Sure, thanks, Ming. Mm -hmm. So yeah, the next chart, which is the autonomy. So the Autonomous Vehicle Systems Task Force. So this is actually a task force that got stood up a couple of years ago that was led by a guy uh, from Boeing, Jim Fasatka. Um, and um, <clears throat> who was at Boeing now? At the, he's got, uh, I think, a small consulting group, um, and had a pretty broad um, membership, uh, as shown here. And I, as I mentioned, that one of the um, things that they had recommended as part of the task force was to have an aerospace autonomy summit, which was uh, organized by Glenn Culler. Um, and that was held in uh, November 4th last year. Um, it was actually quite successful. Um, that that uh, summit brought people, it was primarily focused on adva advanced air mobility aspects of autonomy. Um, and there were, uh, we 
organized a summit. It had a number of speakers, both uh, from senior NASA, senior FAA, as well as, well as um, you know, congressmen. Um, and then we had four panels, and most of the panels in, involved uh, had members of, of NASA, FAA, um, industry, and academia. So it was a it was actually a, a really great broad view. Uh, gave gave a, a one one full day got a very broad perspective, um, and we're actually following up on that right now with a uh, a space autonomy summit that's going to be held, I believe, on November sixteenth. Um, we'll we'll actually have a similar structure to it to what Glenn had had uh, put together for the. Aerospace Autonomy Summit, um, and that—that's actually that—that's being uh, led by a guy who just recently retired from JPL, uh, Rich Doyle, who's been um, who's been working space autonomy for most of his career. Now, what one of the things I'm trying to do right now is figure out where to pick up from that, um, and we're trying to, uh, and and actually in conversations with Ming. Um, Certainly, um, as they're cert as he's standing up to certification, there's going to be a big challenge. Is going to be the area of autonomy. How do you do certification of autonomy? Um, is also the um, advanced mobility task force is starting to get you know more questions about autonomy. And so, what we want to do is make sure that we've got we get the the autonomy group restood up. Um, and I. And I'm trying to get it focused more on the at this point, the challenges of of being able to uh, accomplish true contingency management the contingency management function as part of the autonomy. Um, and so we're I'm in the process of right now looking for somebody to kind of take the lead on that. And then my hope is that we will get this stood up, you know, over the kind of the same timeline that. Uh, Ming was talking about for certification, you know, sometime over the next couple of months. Um, it's 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 a it's it's a hot topic, and one of the things I wanted to mention uh, when Ming and I and Julie had to brief the, the AIAA board of trustees on some of these topics, you know, they they were saying, you know, AIAA is a volunteer organization has a hard time sometimes moving really fast. So while some of these topics are we're addressing because there's kind of urgent need right now and there is some time pressure. They also want to make sure that we start to tackle, take on projects that are of a longer lead time associated with them so that we 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 um, are able to have, you know, move at a more natural pace for AAA. So um, and so we are going to be looking for um, advice from the larger membership on those opportunities. Um, next chart is talking about the uh, transformative systems engineering. Um, so we we actually um, we just had a kickoff on that, and that that happened on uh, Tuesday of this week, uh, the, earlier this week. Jim Faced is uh, he's agreed to be the uh, the lead for this task force. He's um, when. One of the roles he played when Mike Griffin was in OSD running uh, OSD research and engineering, uh, Jim was the E side of that of that. So he was the direct report to Mike Griffin. 
he's got a long history in um, in commercial aerospace, worked um, for Harris for many years, and has some really strong, uh, great, great perspective on on um, the challenges of systems engineering. Um, what we're actually doing, um, so I'll probably, um, there'll be an engaged site stood up on this. I think that's working right now and we'll get a list of all the current members and stuff. Um, but we've got some folks from, from R&E, we've got some folks from, uh, I think, uh, Microsoft, we've got folks from um, Northrop and Lockheed and I think Boeing. And we're we're also going to make sure that we have representation of the digital in engineering integration committee, um, DEIC, as well as the systems engineering technical committee, and I think the, the design engineering technical committee. Um, so, um, and and what we've done also is we actually one of the things Jim did is he actually reached out to DARPA and asked him if we were going to be doing something on transformative system engineering, what would you like to see us focus on? And they came back with a suggestion that said they said, what if you kind of took a hard look at the challenge of autonomous systems of systems? And so we're using that as kind of our core use case. To, to kind of focus the activity. And even that's still broad, um, but I expect that we'll, and over the next, I would say next few weeks, we'll probably start to generate a little, some more detailed versions of what that use case might look like. So I think that's it for the transformative systems engineering. And if you're, if people are interested in participating, you know, please reach out. Let's see, I see there's a question. Okay. Let's see. Um, and then I think the next chart, what do we have next? I think it may be, um, forget what, what, what comes up next. Okay, so this, is, uh, so this is Julie's task force on space traffic management. This has been going on a while. It wasn't really stood up as a formal task force, but as I mentioned, Sandy Magnus has been leading the, um, the activity on this. Um, and um, <clears throat> they've um, really been looking very hard at, at some of the stuff relating to just the general congestion of LEO that's in LEO right now. Um, you can see the, the kind of member organizations that are involved. And, um, you know, one of the things they, they'd like to take some credit for is the um, <clears throat> getting some movement on this Space Policy Directive 3, and um, then the full authorization appropriation staffing of the 8th Office of Space Commerce and elevation within the Department of Commerce. Um, and so that's that's one of the things, and that actually is one of the things we would hope that that's the kind of impact AIAA can make. You know, is making sure that as the uh, from a policy perspective, as they start to kind of stand up key government organizations, they they're kind of right headed about it and making sure they're that they're anticipating the types of uh, organizations, the types of decisions they need to be prepared to make in these um at inside of the department of commerce 
And shame that Julie's not here. She she she's really can talk to that. Okay. Um, or were there are there questions or do we want to wait till the end if, for questions or Let's see some. Why don't we go ahead and keep going? Finish off, and then we'll 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 open it up for questions. Okay. Then the next chart is I think the next chart is talking about the um, work we're doing on for both the aviation and SciTech. Is that right, Ming? Yeah. Next chart. Oh, oh, oh right. it's a cislunar one. This lunar one. So this came, this uh, cislunar, you know, one of the things that people ask about these these topics and the task forces, it's, um, you know, how do you, how do you pick the topic for the next task force? And in this case, um, there was some work being done by aerospace in this whole concept of cislunar propellant depots. And so um, it, Julie felt, it, both Julie and Dan felt it was important for AIAA to start to play a leadership role there. So they've been partnering with aerospace. And I think there was a um, there was an introductory webinar that was held in August. Um, and then they, they had their kind of first workshop in late August. Um, and there's going to be a report out in terms of the early activity, that that will happen at Ascend in October, and um, and then that and then out of around out of that kind of webinar workshop activity, they're now using that activity to formalize a task force. Um, so, but but this is an exciting area right now, and and it's, it was just it's an example where because there was some other activity going on in the community, we took that as an opportunity to kind of uh, take advantage of that and trying to figure out how to um, influence that activity to support kind of a longer vision, longer roadmap. And then if I may add, so this is the one that is kind of um, more looking towards the future uh, needs of of the of the industry and so this is the one that you know most of the other ones that we have are pretty much what's going on right now um cislunar propellant depot one is more what more being started up and and as as the space economy and space um space um i guess um effort is going on, this will become one of the one of the areas that would be um, a, a market market area that that um, the whole economy will will be centered on. So um, this is one that AIAA wants to make sure that that it has it has a big presence in. But it's also, it, it creates some challenges right now. Um, for instance, um, as 
Julie is trying to decide who should lead this task force. You know, she has to be careful that, you know, for instance, if she asks Lockheed Martin to lead it, for example, they, they it may start to have too heavy a bent from what from in terms of what they're marketing. And so that some of the challenges that we stand up these task forces is to make sure we find a lead who can be can can really be neutral and kind of represent the broader community. So just just one of the challenges we have as we as we uh, stand up these task forces. Yep. Next chart. Absolutely. <clears throat> Anything on next one? So um, so again. So one of the things that uh, again Ming and, and I and Julie didn't actually uh, understand when we signed up to be the domain lead was that what came with that. Well, Julie kind of understood it more because Ascend was being stood up at the same time. But but essentially, what they wanted us to do is they wanted they've asked each of the domain leads to be essentially also serve as the executive producer of the three major forums. So. Julie is executive producer for Ascend. Uh, Ming is the executive producer for Aviation, and I'm the executive producer for SciTech. So, in addition to kind of thinking about how we organizing these task forces, and uh, the, the other thing we're now doing is is uh, working on uh, pulling together the uh, you know the forum. So for me, we've got you know Ascend is going to be in Washington D.C. Uh, January, the week of January 23rd. So it's actually interesting because, you know, traditionally it's the first week in January. And so this now is the third week in January. For some people, they like it. Other people, they don't, you know. And because, because SciTech has such a broad um, coverage of technologies, you know, when you move it a week, it turns out it, it inevitably sits on top of a another conference that um, uh, would so it creates a conflict. But anyways, <clears throat> so what we've been doing with um, so we've got an overall theme which is kind of you know ignite the future, kind of exploring the opportunities of aerospace, um, and we're the way we're trying to do is on Monday. We want the plenary sessions to really be focused on the questions of societal challenges, uh, big societal challenges, and where does aerospace play? You know, how, how can aerospace help in, to address some of those big challenges? You know, whether it's climate change or, or um, you know, just the general topic of the future of food, for example. Um, Tuesday, what we want to do is because it's going to be in DC, we want to take full advantage of it and try to bring in um, many of the um, program managers that are actually funding technology work that would be addressing some of these grand challenges. Um, and so, and so we were, we're calling Tuesday kind of a meet the funders day. Um, and um, and we're going to be talking both about government funding as well as uh, uh, private funding. That would include venture capital funds or you know large corporation innovation funds and stuff of that sort. So that that's what Tuesday is going to be. Wednesday is our science day, and one of the reasons we wanted to have a day devoted to science was just 
the amazing uh, success. And, you know, uh, Ken had it on his, his opening, one of his charts, you know, James Webb Space Telescope. I mean, it's, it's, it's actually been amazing the, the, how it stimulated renewed interest in, in, uh, in science across the country. So, um, so as I said, there'll be a lot focused on James Webb. Um, we'll also kind of, we're using kind of right now as a general theme, the challenge of remote sensing um, and both from space and, and an aviation perspective. Thursday is gonna be our digital day. So, um, you know, all things digital, we'll be looking at uh, certainly things, you know, digital transformation, both from a kind of engineering tools perspective, as well as things like we'll have a session on, on, on human machine teaming. And then finally, Friday, we wanna kind of, where we start off on Monday with the focus on some of the big challenges, we wanna kind of then on Friday, take a view from a kind of a science fiction perspective, kind of far out visions for how, how what the world will look like. And, and how those challenges will be will have ultimately been addressed. So that's what we're trying to do um, with SciTech. It's been uh, pretty active right now, and and it also feels like we're getting close to end game. It's I know it's going to be uh, really kind of just three months away. We're going to well four months away. We'll be we'll have uh, stuff, and we we had um, I think a record number of, of submissions in terms of papers. So very encouraging, um, and there will be. Um, we're we're hoping for a very large in person, but we'll also be supporting a number of of uh, virtual sessions as well. So I think with that, if there are any questions, let's see. Uh, Scott, can you hear me? Yes, I can hear you. Uh, you mentioned about the side tag. Uh, are you talking about a special kind of session just for domain? strategy initiative, or you're talking about the everyday uh, SciTech general schedule here? Because that's imagine every day. That's, 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 the, that's the overall SciTech, each day, the theme okay, for okay. all SciTech. So they, these are not just, you know, the domain initiative it is for... Right. Okay. No, no, that, and it goes back, uh, Ken, to the, you know, when they asked us to be domain leads, they also asked us to play the role of executive producer because, and the reason that is the case is they wanted to make sure that we would, the, the, the forums is where kind of a lot of the uh, publication comes out. So, so they're hoping that as us being executive producer, we'll start to influence the content to have, to be aligned with the key topics we've identified for each of the domains. Well, so, so you're saying you are your domain initiative become the backbone for SciTech. That's what you're saying. Ultimately, oh, okay. you, know, you, you, you know, we want to go slow, right? So SciTech okay. is a very successful uh, okay. conference. So it's one of those things where you want to be careful. You don't want to change it too fast. You don't want to break what's not broken, right? Um, but, um, but I think over time, we're trying to, we're trying to do that. And, and Ming will talk to this too. But one of the things we're trying to do is to make sure that there's better alignment between the plenary sessions and the technical paper sessions. And we'd like that alignment to, in addition to those two elements of SciTech being aligned, 
we then want them to be aligned with the the domain roadmaps as well. So that's okay. that's the ultimate objective. And you know, there's there we're we're doing what we can to influence to try to nudge it in that direction. So, and I think with that, I'm going to hand it over to Ming because he's um, he's uh, going to talk about aviation now. Okay. Oh, the, um, yeah. yeah. So yeah, go ahead. Um, so so we're gonna start up. So actually, we started up aviation um, guiding coalition, and you can see the membership that that we have. Um, so what 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 the guiding coalition is for is really, um, and and Scott is is starting this. Um, originally, the guiding coalition for uh, Ascend was was looking at a collabor collaboration effort on in regards to doing a lot of the mission and mission discussions and that type of stuff, and then also to have uh, technical paper uh, sessions. And um, Ascend kind of was looking at that. Um, unfortunately, when they first started Ascend, it swung, swung the pendulum to one side, whereas aviation and SciTech was still um, in the old way of uh, um, executive steering committee that plan the the overall mission aspects the themes and and the panel sessions and the technical sessions the papers and all that were basically on their own and there was no connection between the two of them um ascend as i said went the other way and kind of forgot about or forgot about the the paper sessions even though they still had paper sessions, they didn't tie it together um, well. So what what AIAA has done is is brought us together to really look at trying to marry the two, and marrying the two, we created instead of the ESC, which is the Executive Steering Committee, we're now. Re uh, calling that a guiding coalition, same thing as Ascend, where the guiding coalition is looking at the mission aspects and the technical aspects and trying to marry the two within the forum and, and, and thereby looking at key topics that would be themes to the, to the forum and um, using the guiding coalition to tie in the technical aspects to the to the um, themes of the theme of the forum and also themes of the day that uh, you see um, Scott has put up. Guiding so aviation just started that where we just started having the the meeting. Um, I think two or three weeks ago, we will start. We will start our our in-depth planning starting this month. So um, 
as I said, we, you know, the Aviation 2023 will be in San Diego. And one of the things that we would want to do is to start having more of the local session sections be more involved in the in these uh, forums um, and 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 look at giving each um, each one of the local sections a venue to kind of um, show their wares of what they're doing and where they are and where they're heading. Um, so this is, so as I said, we are starting the planning and, and we're moving forward. Um, I think that's about it that I have for aviation. Uh, I think that um, there is also um, a send for next chart or a send was before, I don't remember. Next chart. Oh, okay. Well, so um, because because Julie is not here, we'll we'll skip the ascend um, ascend uh, coalition. Um, but so you know, we have the domains have created or AIAA has created domains or or engaged sites for all of us. And these are the sites that we have, and you're more than welcome to um, get into it and and um, uh, get engaged into the task forces. I have this CES task force and AAM task force. Um, Scott will be following up with a transformative task force and. Um, Julie will be following up with the STM and Cislunar Task Force. Um, so, as I said, um, we would we're, we welcome any one of you to join in and be part of the conversation for each one of these task forces. Next, and with that, I think that's the end of what we have. Um, open up for any. Any questions for Scott and I? I think uh, uh, maybe there is a there's a couple of questions here. Um, there's one is uh, so how does your domain classification method mesh with organizations such as uh, IEEE and SAE? So I basically can answer that one. Um, at, AI, at, at Aviation 2023, we are actually going to uh, have co-located uh, IEEE EATS org, uh, group. And in there, we, we will have, we're hoping to have some um, commonality or cross um, um, discussion groups and panels and technical papers on the electrification uh, of, of aviation and, and you know, electric aircraft um, areas. Um, so we're also looking at um, maybe having co-locations of other groups such as maybe um, um, 
VF, VFS, which is Vertical Flight Society, and also maybe um, uh, we're maybe looking at uh, talking to AUBSI if they're interested in being co-located with, with us for, for a year or so. Um, I guess the other question is, this has, uh, uh, Randall can, I'll, I'll, why don't you, why don't you uh, ask us the first question there that you have? I'm I'm not sure they can talk because it's in the uh, webinar structure. So actually, they are in enabled. They are able to talk. Okay. But, but uh, Randall generally he didn't speak out uh, unless he changed mind. But in general, he he typically okay. just type a question. So if you can read the Q and A uh, for Randall, uh, you can you can read that. But but Gus and the Stan they can speak out. You know, okay, I asked thanks. them to, to raise questions. So they, uh, anyone that want to ask questions, they will they will be able to speak yeah. out. But but Randall, typically he doesn't speak out. Okay, unless, so, yeah. so so Ming, I, I, let me take a crack at this. So the question, sure. this is a process slash C-suite look to it. It appears a little foreign compared to how things have been presented in the past. Um, so. We've been involved, you know, and this goes back to the conversation uh, that Ming was having when he's discussing, you know, the kind of plenary sessions, you know, versus the technical sessions. And, you know, inside of AIAA, there's kind of this uh, bottom up view, which is kind of a technical centric technical program view versus the plenary, which people have characterized as a top down view, um, which goes back to the quote c-suite perspective we we're trying to say it's it's not a top-down view as much as it is it's a mission perspective versus technology perspective and and frankly it's not bad sometimes to have a mission perspective and get an operator view of this and we actually think that that can be powerful and valuable to the technical community and that's part of what we're trying to do is kind of bring a mission perspective a user perspective into the room so that so that as people so our our membership is working on kind of creating key capabilities enabling these key capabilities they'll understand how people will use them and can can actually factor that into their their development work so um so that we're we're trying to not use top down versus bottom up as much as technical perspective balanced with a mission user perspective. Uh, I see Gus has his hand up. Gus, do you want to ask? Yeah, good morning. Uh, I actually have a, a few thoughts. So it's uh, my first question was regarding uh, for Ming and you, Scott, uh, the, on the definition or if you can elaborate on this, the certification process. That you're talking about on this main on the domain topics and, and subtopics. Um, but before you, uh, you 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 respond back, I just have some thoughts and and wanted to use this forum as just to kind of let you know. I am the deputy director of AIAA's uh, business management and legal and economics group, so it's part of the IOD, and uh, I cannot express it more strongly, but this domain communication that you guys uh, are providing today is extremely important uh, because 
uh, we believe, some of us feel that the members are still confused as to what this is all about. Uh, I know that Dan is working this hard, uh, but perhaps the reads uh, can help uh, in disseminating the, 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 the information that you're, that you're passing out. And I know that you guys are pretty, pretty busy with all of the <clears throat> ascent and, and, the, and the restructuring of the reorganization that is going on. Uh, so that's food for thought. The BMG, the business management group, is part of the IOD, which is business management, economics, and legal. So we will be reaching out to you in trying to get some roundtable or discussion to intersect how that can support your alignment on within the, the main domain structures. Um, and and, and, and I agree on Julie's sentiment that making the leads and sponsors of this domain areas should be as objective as possible because there's a possible danger of putting a heavy leaning on the corporate marketing on mm. whoever is actually trying to lead that. And that's something that I've already come across in three different occasions with AIAA's uh, uh, leadership. Uh, when we bring up a subject uh, regarding BMG, uh, we we need to be really careful on on on, the, on how we approach it because the big the big boys in the the, the big sponsors uh, may may take this uh, in the in a, in a in a sensitive way. Uh, to that to that subject of the intersection between BMG and, and the domains, uh, I would be supporting the, uh, the the aviation forum do domain uh, main. Michael Dodge is on the legal side. Emily Diaz uh, from JPL, she would be supporting the ascent and the space topics. And Ray Flores out of Ray Patterson Air Force Base on the research and uh, development and the management topics. So good job today. I, I, I look forward to, to work with you. Thank Thanks. you, guys. That's great to hear. Appreciate the comments. And yeah, this, this whole the whole challenge of, of ensuring that the these task forces, you know, are are kind of neutral. You know, not trying to advocate a a particular corporate agenda, but we want to make sure that it's a well thought out technical agenda again and technical slash mission agenda. So, and I think that this this the the task force that Julie's starting to trying to stand up on the cis lunar propellant depot that I think it's that's a great area to be in right now and you want to make sure that that you're making key decisions based on on you know strong understanding of the technology and systems so uh, Scott me we um, have a high school student here uh, Valeria uh, she'd like to ask a question okay oh absolutely hello uh, can you hear me? Yes. Yes. Okay, sounds great. So regarding advanced air mobility, I was wondering what fuels do you believe have great potential towards combating climate change? Well, right now, right now, so so in regards to fuels, um, right now, um, the 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 industry is looking at SAF to help do that in the in the near term, which is 2020, 2035. 
Um, and towards you know what we what the what the community is looking at right now to to get to 2050 is more hydrogen hydrogen fuel. The problem is in that regards getting into those areas. SAF is, is a little bit easy as you notice that a lot of airliners are doing that. They're doing different mixes and looking at uh, you know. Um, um, I guess um, fuels, bio, biological fuels, um, but in in terms of hydrogen, um, there's there's a need to look at the infrastructure for for hydrogen, because hydrogen the 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 uh, energy densities for hydrogen is a lot less than than carbon fuels, so or fossil fuels. So, so um, you know, what is the potential? Um, what is what is the best? What is the um, best fuel or or mechanism? I think um, I think it's a mix between um, SAF, hydrogen, and and you know, all electric aircraft. If that helps to answer your question. And then I guess the other, I guess, Gus, you had a question in regards to certification. So certification, as you are aware, is a very, very big subject, right? And it scares everybody half of that. Um, and so one of the things that I've been looking at, and of course I wanna be as, as um, broad as possible. Um, and I'm looking at, possibly trying to stand up a couple of um, uh, maybe work uh, working groups as as God kind of uh, alludes to within the within the task force that will look at different areas of certification and you know I see and and from the people that I've talked to see that there are several areas, you know, one is the well. One is autonomy, certification of autonomy, right? Um, the second is um, AM certification of AM. Third is software autonomy and software is kind of you know synergy within each other. There, you know, you can't have one without the other. But there are still aspects of autonomy that 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 needs to be. That needs to be certified, and 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 where is that? Where is that? And and a lot of people think it's it's HMI, human machine interactions, and or AI type stuff. Um, and then of course subsystems. Um, I kind of think that I would like to have AM as a start, AM and autonomy as a two areas of certifications that I would like to pursue first. But then, you know, when I stand up the group, I'd like to, I, of course, I would like them to go uh, pick the pick the best uh, or the most, um, most prevalent or the low hanging fruits that they would want to pursue. But those are the two areas that I'm thinking that I would like to direct, direct, direct our first efforts to. And the other, I mean, um, and then on the other side is that um, it's not to say that these task forces, even though these task forces 
are we're hoping that they they only last for a year, 12 months basically. Um, it's not to say that at the end of the 12 month period, we put together these these um, roadmaps that it's the end of it. What we're hoping for is as these task forces end, there may be a phase, a second phase or a third phase that they can go and pick something else to go, go on with, or they can continue with hey, let's pass this on to, to a technical committee or a integration and outreach, outreach committee. Thank you, man. Yeah, you're welcome. Um, can you hear me okay? Yes. Yes. Yeah, uh, Valerie, uh, Valeria has uh, actually another question. Can you try it again? Sure. That one. Hello. So I was just wondering, what does SAF stand for, or what is it? Oh, uh, SAF stands for uh, oh God, uh, uh, special. No, okay. The acronym. There's too many acronyms, but it's uh, uh sustainable aviation fuel. Yeah, sustainable aviation fuel. Yes, there you go. Sorry about that. <laughs> So it's basically, you know, different different fuel mixes. Um, right now, there are, uh, you know, uh, recycled fuel mixture into it, or uh, waste mix waste uh, fuel mixture with the with uh, carbon fuel mixtures. So there there are different different fuel mixtures that different groups are putting together. Some of them are corn um, corn or um, you know, uh, weed or whatever um, uh, mixtures or or fuels um, that are developed for this. Okay, thank you so much. You're welcome. Uh, Stan, I saw you post some question in the chat. Stan, do you want to speak out? You are enabled. Your mic is enabled. Yeah, Ken, I really don't have much to add. I will uh, comment though that uh, Echo Gus's comments that uh, there is some confusion uh, from my limited perspective within AIAA about how uh, the domains are going to be working and what you're doing. So this has been a great program. And Ken, I want to thank you for inviting Ming and Scott and Julie to come because this is a great opportunity to, uh, to learn what's going on. And there is really interaction going on within AIAA between the domains and the technical activities organizations and uh, and, and I really appreciate the time spent. My, my little comment uh, being about uh, carbon emissions was, uh, was simply a pet peeve of mine that, you know, I think what when people say carbon emissions, it, it conjures up these uh, visions of spewing black smoke all over the place. <laughs> and that's not what uh, airplanes do. And I would prefer that we use the term carbon dioxide if we mean to say carbon dioxide and not just decarbonization. But yeah. That's just a pet peeve of mine, and I hold AIAA to a very high standard. So there you go. Uh, anyhow, no, no a lot. problem with that. I mean, yes, you're you're, you're absolutely right, right? Um, but um, we the, this question came up several times, and and um, I guess this was coined um, before I before I even um, was asked to do this. Um, so, 
you know, we we've been looking at, hey, what what we want to do is change that, but but I guess the AIAA and Board of Trustees have already coined this coined this title, so um, we're not we're not we don't think we want to change it, but we are. It's not only carbon; it's really emissions, right? There are there are other emissions that we want to deal with also. Anyhow, thanks a lot for being here today and appreciate it. all you're doing for AIAA. No, no problem. Same, you yeah. know, uh, it's 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 a it's an interesting it's an interesting problem for us as you as as both Gus and and Stan you guys know um, is that AIAA, especially the forums, um, side tech and aviation. There, the the mission aspects and the technical aspects of the of the forums are totally totally disjointed. Uh, so papers are 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 being presented all the time. Great that the papers are presented all the time, but then there is this this panel speakers and all that. They're talking about you know sustainability. They're talking about um, digital engineering, all of that, but there's no tie-in between those those topics. So, so going forward, um, Scott and I and Julie are going to going to work that such that such that they will be tied together. And as time goes by, each forum from forum to forum to forum, they will also be tied together. That's great. Uh, I saw Randall has another question, but I think uh, Scott is typing a question online. Uh, well, I, there. And I, I could just say, I, I think what Randall suggests is, is a very good idea. And that's actually what we hope to be able to do that through this, this kind of this mission perspective, it'll actually, we'll be able to see how the technologies map into that mission perspective and also should help um, shine a light on where there are gaps. And, and that's really a big part of what what Dan Dumbacher hopes we're able to do as domain leads is to identify these gaps where we think more energy needs to be applied to make sure that the, the community is moving forward. So it's probably easier for me to say than to, to type. I'm not a great typer. So. But Ming, did you want to add anything to that? No. Um, yeah. And, you know, just as a as a response also, you know, what we are wanting to do and we're trying to convince AIAA to do is to be able to create what I call a library system that is searchable and user-friendly and ties a lot of this stuff together such that a person looking at say what SAF fuel is, they can type that in and get all the information that they would want ad nauseum on SAF fuel. <laughs> well, and not only all the information, also know about what are the activities going on, you know, like which task forces are focused on that, what tech committees are focused on it. And and we, at this point, I don't think we've got that, that great kind of, uh, uh, top down, top level view. Um, 
And and yes, and that's right. So so you know what we would want to do, and that's where the young professionals comes in uh, would be helpful with your ideas of how to make this happen would be great, right? Um, both Scott and I were retired. We, you know, I know, I know I'm still, and I think Scott is also, I'm still wanting to jot things down on paper. <laughs> I'm a, I'm one of those yeah, old-fashioned people that if I, I don't jot things down on paper, it just doesn't feel right. Yeah, we're, we're both digital immigrants. We're not digital natives. So. Yeah, that's right. You're talking to a bunch of nerds as well here, so don't feel bad. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. <laughs> anyway, so with that, I think uh, if there's no more question, um, you can give it back to Ken, Ken here. Thank you so much. Thanks for letting us speak. Yep. Um, and you know we're 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 here. Um, our information is readily available. If you have any questions, please contact us, and and we will certainly um, be more than happy to engage with you. Thank you so much. Uh, that's fantastic uh, talk. So stay in touch. Uh, Scott Min will add away Los Angeles that's bigger section fully support you and Dan Dan Barker for this great effort. Uh, so thank you so much again. Uh, uh, so our next speaker is here. So we, we really appreciate it. But please, uh, if you're interested, uh, stay in, you know, uh, listen to uh, the next talk. Thank you. Yeah, I might want to sit in on that next talk. Then. All right. Th thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah, we, we'll continue to work with you. Uh, so our next uh, speaker is uh, uh, Dr. Stephen Bryan. Uh, he's an uh, expert in uh, uh, global defense. Let me see. Oh, no, he hasn't turned on his audio. So. Um, so let me do this way. Uh, let me first just quickly um, introduce Dr. Uh, Stephen Bryan. Oh, now I turn on his uh, uh, camera. Hi, Dr. Uh, Bryan. Thank you so much for uh, you know uh, joining us today and uh, give this wonderful talk. Um, he has an amazing uh, bio, so you all saw online. Uh, so I don't want to read everything. It is so impressive, uh, but I just want to uh, say a few words about it. Uh, you know, just uh, give, give me a quick. Uh, um, uh, let me see. Did I incidentally? Okay. Uh, so basically, he's a uh, um, most important thing. He, he was uh, the former deputy under secretary of defense for trade security policy. Uh, he is also the head of Jewish Institute of National Security Affairs. Uh, he has been writing books, publishing art great articles, and is uh, a senior fellow for American Center of Democracy. Uh, then his uh, just amazing history. And the very, very important was that he was actually in Taiwan during the 1996 Taiwan Strait Crisis, working with former CIA director, uh, Mr. Uh, James Woosley. Uh, there's a... Uh, um, and some uh, other important people, Admiral and people too. Uh, Admiral Bud Edney. Yeah, yeah. And he will tell us about, about it more. And he has been paying attention, uh, analysis, and uh, give talks uh, about this issue. So we, we really, um, you know, he's a great expert in, in this field and also global security. 
So, uh, you know, he's going to give us an update, as you heard, about the recent tension uh, in, in Taiwan's trade and the West Pacific specific, uh, specifically, and still uh, developing. And uh, so, uh, so without further ado, let's welcome Dr. Stephen Bryant. Thanks, Ken. Um, I wonder, can I share the screen? Yes, go ahead, please. Good. I'd like to put up a, some PowerPoint that I did. Uh, first of all, thank you for having me. It's very uh, good morning to you. And now the important news of the day is that Texas and Alabama are tied 10-10 in the third quarter. <laughs> yeah, so that's the really, you know, now we can get on to other things, but you have to start there, of course. Uh, in any case, uh, let me see what I can do here. And if I make this work, um, I have to push, I think I did something wrong. I have to push share screen. Yes. And yeah, here we go. And you should be able to see that now. Yes, it comes up. Good. And uh, here we go. Okay. And I want to move this uh, band of, okay. Let me get started with, let's see if I can make this work properly here. Now, I'm the co-author, just so you know, uh, I'm a co-author of a book, a, a new book, a relatively new book, a few months old now, along with uh, Lieutenant General Earl Halston. He's a, US, a retired U.S. Marine general. And I'll explain more about it in a little while, but uh, we did a, a quite a in-depth study with a number of colleagues who you'll meet uh, uh, on what the U.S. ought to be uh, doing in respect to uh, Taiwan. And I'm gonna cover a lot of that ground. But let me start with a more uh, current, the current situation. Uh, there's a, a cartoon of, uh, uh, Tsai Ing-wen, who's the president of Taiwan, and Nancy Pelosi. And of course, we're talking about the Nancy Pelosi visit to uh, to Taiwan in August and the Chinese response to it. Um, I think that the, this, is, this was kind of a, a wake-up call in, in Washington because, uh, to a large extent, both the uh, the White House, the State Department, and I think also the, the, the Defense Department were opposed to the visit, not because they were inherently opposed to the visit, but they were opposed to the timing of the visit uh, for two reasons. I mean, one of them, the war in Ukraine has taken most, most of their attention and it also has occupied most of U.S. Uh, inventory of equipment. Uh, that would be also important in the Pacific. That was one thing. And on a broader, the second point is, in a, in a broader way, the U.S. was far from prepared to uh, get into any big argument with China. They need more time. There's certainly a shift in resources to the Pacific. It's been going on for some time. But if you wanted to put a timeline on it, I'd say we're five to ten years away from really uh, being able to strengthen the U.S. posture in the region and also to sort out our relations with our friends and 
allies in the regions, including Taiwan. And I'm going to talk about that in a bit, uh, in a few minutes. So on August 3rd, as the slide shows you, uh, the PRC or China started uh, large-scale military uh, exercises. First part of that were uh, fighter planes and other aircraft, uh, electronic uh, uh, surveillance and jamming aircraft, bombers uh, flying uh, across for the first time in, in recent months, the Taiwan Strait centerline in mass. Um, and uh, this was immediately seen by Taiwan as a major challenge uh, that could get them into a war. They were very, they, they, of course, they tried to shadow all these Chinese incursions on a regular basis. Uh, mostly by bringing up their F-16s to meet them, meet and greet, we can call it. Um, this was a big one, in, in fact, very big. Now, one thing to note, and I think it's very important, is that this penetration, that, that this line has been there since the 1950s. It's an imaginary line down the center of the Taiwan Straits, which both sides have more or less honored both sides being Taiwan and China, have more or less honored as a no-go, you don't cross, uh, because that becomes a provocation and you don't want provocations. Uh, so that has mostly stayed uh, in place and mostly has been honored. There have been a number of occasions, especially in recent months, where Chinese planes have gone across, but not for long. And in, in this case, and it's important to note, that that uh, they basically crossed the line for about four minutes. So it wasn't, they were very cautious about, they wanted to do it to make a point, but they also wanted to make it clear that, that they weren't trying to start a conflict. And that, that's quite significant, I think. And of course that was noted by the United States and by the Japanese and by the Taiwanese as, as well. Uh, now, when the PLA started this exercise in response to the Pelosi visit, all branches of the Chinese um, military were supposedly engaged in various exercises, which were called training sessions. And, and the ob objective was both to show that they could do a, a blockade of Taiwan, that they could carry out assaults from the air and the sea, uh, that they could hit ground targets, so they were showing off their targeting capabilities at sea, of course, not on the land, um, and that they could uh, manage uh, uh, joint naval and air operations and even joint combat capabilities of troops. Although, and it's uh, I'll come to it in a minute, but it's important to know there was no ground assault preparation in this in these exercises. They stayed back from that again. To, so as not to provoke, not just Taiwan, but not to provoke the United States. There was a case of four missiles that fought, that actually crossed over Taiwanese territory. It's an interesting question because I was there, as, as Ken mentioned, I was in Taiwan in 1996 with Jim Woolsey and Admiral Bud Edney during the serious, a much more serious, in my opinion, a much more serious crisis um, between uh, China and Taiwan, where the straits were closed, where where the, all the access to Taiwan was blocked off. 
and where missiles were being fired. Um, and there was a real angst inside Taiwan that because there, the Taiwanese have no answer to these missiles. Let's be straightforward about it. Uh, and they still don't, actually. So the, the four missiles going over Taiwanese territory were risky, to say the least, and, and out of somewhat out of the, the ordinary. I think the Chinese were looking to see the, how Taiwan's air defenses, modern air defenses, uh, responded. Since 96, Taiwan has PAC-3, which is a Patriot PAC-3, which is a far, be it's a far better system than what they had before. But in my personal view, well, I think it's not mine only, the PAC-3, even PAC-3 is not a very good missile defense system. We've seen it operate in uh, Saudi Arabia, uh, in the UAE, in Israel, uh, but principally against ballistic missiles. The ones in Israel were used against, they were earlier version PAC-2s, and they were used against uh, SCUDs. But uh, Scud missiles. But it, the, what we saw in in uh, UAE and Saudi was the Patriots trying to deal with with ballistic, uh, heavy ballistic missiles. It's short range, but heavy, um, and they partially worked. It partially isn't very good, much good enough. And, and the reason I think is uh, we could have a longer discussion about this. But the reason it seems is that. They really only do intercepts a few thousand feet away from the target. Uh, they may have a greater slant range in principle, but by the time they respond and by the time the missiles reach the target, that target is almost visible to the naked eye. So it's get, it gets quite close. And so even if it hits uh, the incoming missile, it may not, it may knock it off course a little bit, but it may not destroy it. And that's a that's a, a significant issue with missile defenses, not just Pac-3, but many others, is whether they can really take out uh, ballistic ballistic missiles, which often have a lot of kinetic energy uh, and speed, um, and are difficult to to deflect and destroy. Now, on the naval side, when you look on the chart that I just put up on the left side. Uh, the Chinese sent out 10 destroyers and frigates. Uh, that is a significant number when you consider that Taiwan uh, doesn't have destroyers. It has some frigates. Um, and most of these are pretty old. These uh, a bunch of them. that the, They have the Lafayette-class corvettes, which is probably the best ships that they have. Knox-class cruisers they have, and they also have... Um, F, uh, F, uh, FFG7 uh, frigates from the United States, but they're old. They've been uh, repaired and modernized to a limited extent, but they're no challenge. They're no competition uh, to what the uh, Chinese have in, in, uh, operationally in the Chinese Navy, which, by the way, the Chinese Navy is now, at least technically, and I, I stress technically, larger than the U.S. Navy. And the reason I say technically is that it depends how you count and what you count. Uh, and if you really count firepower and capability, the U.S. Navy is much stronger. But if you count ships, which is the classical, when I was started in the Pentagon in the first Reagan administration, we wanted to build a 600-ship Navy. But of course, in, 
it depended on what those 600 ships were. <laughs> you could make a bunch of oilers and, and uh, pocket cruisers and stuff like that. Yeah, you get up to 600, but what use does it have? More recently, we built these magnificent littoral combat ships, which are really great. They have no firepower and they're more or less worthless. But but so we put our efforts into that and wasted 15, well, 10 years at least of maybe a little more uh, of effort in shipbuilding that could have been built. We could have been building serious ships, but we didn't. Um, in the exercise, the Chinese uh, had both their aircraft carriers out uh, before the exercise got set, it means out of port, before the exercise started, they pulled both of them back and they were not engaged or operational uh, during this uh, uh, event, or called an event, this crisis. Again, I believe the Chinese wanted to make it clear that they were not trying to start a war, they were trying to make a point. Uh, so the aircraft carriers were not actually used at all. China did not exercise any of its ground forces during the uh, during the crisis, so they kept away from that as well. Uh, there was one strange development. Actually, it comes a little bit after the first week of the crisis, and and uh, actually about three weeks later. And this has to do with with the Kinmen. The Americans know Kinmen as the island cluster of islands, actually. Uh, Kimoy. Uh, and you may remember, if, if you're as old as I am, uh, the famous Kennedy-Nixon debates in 1960 uh, about whether we should support uh, uh, and defend uh, Kimoy and Matsu, the other, which was mostly a pile of rocks. Um, and the thing to know about Kim, and we'll, we'll look at a map a little later, is that it's right up against China. It's it's quite close to the to the the larger the large barrier island of Amoy, the Chinese island, uh, and the city of Xiamen. In fact, Xiamen you can see directly uh, from Kunming without any trouble at all, with, without any binoculars. Just look across. Uh, so it's very very close, and. Uh, and I've visited the uh, Kinmen three times now, so I know the I know it pretty well. It's very highly fortified uh, island. Uh, many of its military installations are underground uh, in rock formations. Artillery is un is partially underground and deeply embedded in the in, in the hills. Um, so it's it's something that is potentially defensible. In uh, 1949, uh, Mao, uh, then, then of course the head of China, uh, tried to invade Kinmen. The, the idea was to shake up uh, Chiang Kai-shek over in Taiwan uh, and to show them that uh, they could defeat uh, nationalist forces, at least nearby ones in Kinmen. Uh, they sent about 7,000 troops, uh, on, mostly on uh, fishing boats because they didn't have anything else at the time, to hit the beaches in Kinmen. Uh, the invasion failed. Uh, the, the nationalists who 
Mao thought would not fight, did fight and fought pretty well. They had some old Sherman tanks stuck in the sand, but they could still fire and they used them effectively. And so they turned back this invasion and it was, it was a big black eye for the, for the Chinese. Anyways, what caught my attention, and you may have seen the stories, is the two events. One was, uh, and both of them involved drones. Uh, one was a military drone. Uh, that one overflew Kinmen. Um, didn't do anything, just overflew Kinmen and, and, and left. And the second one was a commercial uh, drone that, that actually went over you know, the little islet. I'll show you a picture of it in a minute. Um, and which the uh, uh, Taiwanese shot down. Um, and the Chinese didn't, didn't take too much. I mean, didn't say very much about it. Didn't apologize, of course. Uh, and, and and that little drone that they did shoot down was was just one of those quadrocopter things. You can buy them uh, anywhere in the United States and anywhere around the world. And they're all made in China. But at least 80% of them are made in China. Um, unfortunately, this this headline actually that that pile of rocks and a few trees that you can see there is actually the little islet where these this drone flew over. And the thing in the back is Yamen, which is the Chinese city seen from Kinmen. So it shows you how close it is. I mean. If, if there was a sports stadium there, both sides could watch the games. Uh, I kind of like this spot. Uh, the other thing to understand is that China is watching very closely the whole business in Ukraine. So there's a lot of lessons that are coming out of the Ukraine war, and we don't have all of them yet by any stretch of the imagination. I don't know how many of you are following the events there. It looks looks today like the, the Russians are in trouble, uh, in both in the um, Donbass area and then also in the south, principally in the Donbass and the northern part of the Donbass area, where they're, they're having a rough time at the moment. But the first thing to note is that the Chinese have understood, as we understand too, the importance of two systems. One is the HIMARS system. And HIMARS is the high mobility artillery uh, rocket system. It's a, it's a shoot and scoot system, multiple rocket launcher. What makes it unique is it's, it's very precise. Um, it has GPS, but it has lots of other things that make it very precise. And, and that has done a lot of damage to Russian forces. And the Russians have had difficulty being able to locate HIMARS, with, even though they, they have uh, multiple ways of locating and have had difficulty destroying them. So the HIMARS is important. Now, Japan has a, the HIMARS is on a wheeled vehicle, a large, uh, I would call it a truck, but that's not exactly what it is, but it's a large wheeled vehicle and, and, and can be driven quickly away. Once you fire it, you can move it. Um, the Japanese have the tracked version of HIMARS, which, which is also a very good system. Um, and the Marines, the U.S. Marines in, on Okinawa have HIMARS. 
uh, and we'll talk more about that later. But this is uh, uh, Taiwan is has ordered HIMARS from the United States because the U.S. encouraged Taiwan to buy it. The, the, the Taiwanese were inclined to buy more traditional artillery, and the U.S. said, "No, no, get HIMARS. You need it." And uh, they do need it. It's it's something that can help them protect against a physical invasion. The other thing that has been shown in Ukraine to be of great interest, as it was shown earlier in the Gorno-Karabakh War two years ago, uh, are drones, and especially armed drones. Um, primarily, the Turkish Bayraktar has played a big role in uh, in Ukraine, uh, although the Ukrainians are running out of them. It's a pretty big drone. It has a wingspan that's actually greater than the wingspan of the F-16 to give you some idea of the size. And it fires small rockets that are that are quite effective. Um, and there are many other kinds of drones on both sides in, in this war, but drones are playing a, an important role in intelligence. They're playing an important role in electronic uh, uh, countermeasures and jamming. Uh, and they're playing an important role as weapons, both as uh, systems that can carry a weapon and then return home, or what we call kamikaze or suicide drones that just simply crash into their target and explode. In the, the Gorno-Karabakh War, uh, uh, both forms, the Bayraktars and the Israeli uh, uh, Harap and a number of other uh, drones, uh, surveillance and suicide, and and uh, ones that could launch uh, rockets or other munitions, uh, played a very significant role in defeating the Armenian forces. And the same has happened in in Ukraine, except both sides do have drones. Um, the Russians have an, a number of systems. The most important one is called Orlan. And it's not a it's not, it's not a killer drone. It's a it's a it's a jammer and surveillance drone. It's been uh, also capable of coordinating uh, fires, that is artillery fires, against uh, targets on the against Ukrainian forces, and it's worked out pretty well. Although the Russians have lost probably fifty of them, maybe more, so far. But they have quite a lot. They have over a thousand. The second thing about the Ukraine war, and, and this was not so much anticipated, was, was the tremendous use of munitions on both sides. Huge, absolutely huge. Um, so much so that U.S. reserve stocks are, uh, are dangerously depleted. And some of these are very difficult to, to replace, or at least to replace quickly. This is especially true when we are talking about uh, man pads, ground to air and missiles, anti-tank weapons, all those that use a lot of electronics uh, take a few years at least to replace uh, from and, and to rebuild the stocks. And because Ukraine is still demanding more and more weapons um, and, and shooting them off as fast as they get them, um, uh, there's a lesson in that, that any conflict in the Pacific, which would be on a much more massive scale, I think, than Ukraine, uh, would eat up a vast amount of, of, of ordnance, both ground-launched and air-launched and sea-launched. So that's a definite lesson from this war, 
and a worrisome one from the point of view of future warfighting capabilities. Um, China, I think, is following uh, uh, not only the use of the American equipment in the war, but what the Russians can do about it, what, how effective their jamming systems are, uh, how effective Russian air defenses are. Uh, and the answer is not very. They haven't panned out quite uh, as well as perhaps Russian marketing and advertising would have suggested. Uh, we already had some hints of that because a number of Russian systems, especially uh, the Buk, B-U-K, uh, air defense system and the Pantsir mobile air defense system uh, did not perform very well in Syria or in uh, Libya. Uh, and and I think uh, people have wondered about, scratch their heads and why is that? It seems like a good system, but it didn't work very well. And that's against the simple, the relatively simple enemy in the case of Libya, in the case of Syria, the, the enemy was actually Turkey which is not simple and, and it's sophisticated. Uh, but even in both cases, uh, the Panseers did badly and they were, many of them destroyed while they were on the road or wherever. So uh, bottom line is that the Russians, things like air defenses, jammers, which the Russians have used very extensively, have not uh, effectively stopped uh, the Ukrainians, although it's done damage to them. And I think the Chinese are evaluating all that because they're learning uh, from the Ukraine conflict uh, the pluses and minuses of this Russian equipment. By the way, lots of Chinese stuff is copies of Russian equipment or is Russian equipment. So they have to think about that. It may not be as good as they thought. Uh, and then I think one of the lessons, a very important one that may have escaped notice, is the sinking of the Moskva. As you probably know, the Moskva was the flag of the Russian uh, ship, the flagship of the Russian fleet on the Black Sea that was destroyed by probably two uh, missiles fired from Ukrainian territory. There's a question about what those missiles were. Uh, the Ukrainians said there were Neptune missiles which are copies of Russian KH-35 missiles. These are subsonic uh, ground-launched missiles that hit the Moskva at sea and destroyed it. I have considerable doubts that that's what happened. Um, I think that's a cover story. Um, I don't think that the, that the uh, Ukrainian Neptune or even the Russian KH is, is actually an adequate weapon in a modern setting. The Moskva was a very modern ship. It was equipped with, with uh, uh, air defenses, sophisticated air defenses, three different kinds. It had elaborate radars. It had electronic jamming capabilities. And unless the whole crew was asleep, which is you know something that can't be ruled out, uh, it was hit and uh, uh, it started to sink the Russians tried to tow it back to uh, to port in Sevastopol. Uh, they failed, and the ship sank. Uh, the other possibility is that this uh, the, the the missiles actually used were the new Norwegian uh, anti ship missiles uh, that the U.S. is adopting. 
And if that's the case, uh, and there's a lot of excitement about this Norwegian missile uh, in the U.S. Navy. And if that's the case, that this is something that China has to worry about because they put a lot of emphasis on their, their Navy, uh, modern Navy, and on the ability to carry out the huge naval exercises just as they did. And it's pretty clear that uh, if this new Norwegian missile gets, it's just starting to be adopted. So I think this was a test. If this actually is, is deployed in any numbers, it's going to be a huge challenge for, for uh, China. I mean, otherwise we're relying on things like Harpoon and, and, and those are okay, but they're, they're, China's familiar with those. But the new one is a whole new game. So I put that down because Moskva is, was as modern a ship as anything the Chinese have, and you see what happened to it. This is a picture of the, 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 the Moskva as after it was hit and before it, well, obviously before it sank. And there's a high Mars, just so you know what it looks like. And that one's uh, launching. It can launch multiple rockets. And they come in different flavors, by the way, based on the, the range. Now, back to the book and, and what we were doing. We, uh, uh, Earl Hailston and myself, organized a panel of top experts under the general supervision of, of, uh, uh, of the Center for Security Policy in Washington. And we got a terrific group of people. We had General Robert Brown from the Army, Admiral Scott Swift from the Navy, Dave Deptula from the Air Force, Earl Haston from the Marines, uh, General Louis Kreproda from the Marines as well, Seth Cropsey, who's a recognized naval warfare expert, Colonel Grant Newsom, who's a Marine, but also an expert in Asian affairs, speaks both Chinese and Japanese. Um, and Colonel Daniel Roper, who's from the U.S. Uh, Army Association. And Adam Savage, just to mention, was this the, the kind of uh, uh, organizer from the center's point of view of this project. We spent three months uh, going over what we need to do for Taiwan and what we and where we should go. By the way, I should mention that everybody on this team without exception, everybody, well, I'm the exception because I never served in the military in the Pacific, but all these uh, generals and admirals uh, and colonels, all of them served in PACOM, in the Pacific Command, uh, in various, very, very senior capacities uh, and very recently. So, so we have a, a team of people who are intimately familiar with the challenges in the Pacific. And so they spent, we spent this, these, these months with each of the generals and admirals making extensive analytical presentation and the rest of the group uh, uh, working to with them to try and uh, parse out the important points and, and challenge things that some may or may not agree have agreed on. At the end of the day, what we what we produce, we agree on. And that was very important to me because I had everyone read the, the final paper 
comment on it, make changes as they wished. Uh, and of course, I would read those changes, uh, make sure that the rest of the group agree with them, uh, and then incorporate them into the text. So we worked very hard to have a consensus paper that was thoroughly vetted uh, and that uh, essentially couldn't lay out a policy framework that could be adopted uh, in future. Now, the reason we did the study, you know, or one of the main reasons, it was twofold. One was that the, you know, the Pentagon, uh, CIA at one point, the various services, um, and some of the leading think tanks in town, including Rand Corporation, uh, had carried out various kinds of war games, simulations, and assessments, all of which were very negative. These assessments were looking at what would happen if the U.S. tried to come to the defense of Taiwan and ended up into, with a fight with the Chinese. And, and they, they, until, I would say, in the last month, and there's been a change in the last month, but until the last month, they were all said, we, 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 would, we would, as they say in French, if we did it, we would have, in French, our asses hand, uh, handed to us. <laughs> in other words, we were going to be defeated. We couldn't do it. We didn't have the assets, the resources, the capabilities, uh, the leadership, nothing. Um, now, some of us, and that our team in particular, felt that this was not the case and that these were worst case kinds of scenarios. They were leveraged in a way to try and sound the alarm to concern Washington. But the real difficulty is when you do these things, it's a two-edged sword. On the one hand, yeah, it can sound an alarm and it can it can warn people that there's a problem. We have to deal with this problem. But on the other hand, it can also frustrate them so that if something like the recent Chinese exercises happened and started to turn into a real conflict, if you're the president or the commander, you know, or or the field commander, or if you're the general and the on the Joint Chiefs or the head of the Joint Chiefs or any of these guys, they're going to say, wait a minute, you know, we better not get involved in this. Let's see what else we can do here because we're going to lose. So here's all these studies, you know, we, we already know that. So these studies are a two-edged sword. And, and, and that's what concerned us. Now, the recent change is that uh, the latest study that came out this past month, past month of August, um, says that there's another war game, says that, yeah, we may win, or at least we may be successful. Winning is a little hard to define here, but we may be successful. So that's a good change. But we were out to also say that that negative approach was a bad one. Um, the, the the second thing is that that uh, the overall US overall US policy, uh, concerned uh, our group and concerned many uh, about the U.S. posture in the world. And you know about Afghanistan, you know what happened. And, 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 and that has left a real black mark on the United States. Not only with the United States, with our own citizens, but it's left a black mark with our friends and allies who aren't sure about what the U.S. will or won't do under certain circumstances. And that plays big in Asia. It also plays big elsewhere, the Middle East. 
And that's why you see uh, our traditional friends in the Middle East, extremely nervous the U.S. is going to cut a deal with Iran, extremely nervous that the U.S. was backing away from Saudi Arabia, UAE, Qatar, and the others, or Israel too. Um, and the Israelis are worried, and the Saudis are worried, and all these people are, are very frightened about uh, the absence or the withdrawal of the U.S. from you know, a role, a stabilizing role in the Middle East. And finally, there's been a great concern that the U.S. is divided when it comes to uh, responding to China. We haven't responded to the Chinese military buildup. We have have been very late in tightening up our export controls. I used to run that program. Uh, so a lot of high tech that's very valuable for military, artificial intelligence, for example, have been going out the door. And now we put some restrictions on AI chips going to China. Well, unfortunately, most of that stuff's already gone, but, but at least we're starting to recognize that uh, there's a problem, but there's a lot more to do if we really want to tighten up. And I'm not even sure we can, but that's a different discussion. So there's also problems in China. Uh, it would be unfair to, to say China is big, powerful, and getting worse and worse. And the U.S. is getting, is, is used to be powerful, now it's weak and getting weaker, weaker, weaker. You know, you know the rest of the story. Actually, things are not quite that way at all. Well, it's absolutely true that China is continuing its military buildup and development. It is working on many very high-tech weapons. It's working on space-based weapons. I mean, it's got a lot of stuff going on. Uh, and, and rather, and I think we have to tip our hat if I was wearing one to the Chinese. I think they've actually, in a very short period of time, done a remarkable job in terms of what they have achieved in terms of military capabilities. There's a lot we don't know about China's military capabilities, especially how well it's integrated and, and whether it really works in a way that lets them take advantage of the synergies of their capabilities, something the Pentagon calls net-centric warfare. Um, not so clear, but not clear at all. So we have more to learn there. But the other thing to take note of is that China is going through some considerable turmoil right now. And I believe that the Chinese plenum will meet in October. And this is where Xi, President Xi, hopes to be reelected officially so that he can uh, take control of the country. But right now, everything's kind of in abeyance because no one's sure that he's going to be the leader after October. So there's a, there's a lot of uncertainty. The Chinese economy is in a mess. Now, part of that's because of COVID, and I'll talk about that in a second. But part of it's for other uh, intrinsic uh, reasons. The, uh, their productivity is going way down. Uh, they have a housing crisis of considerable significance because, well, we, we have housing crisis in the United States from time to time. But in China, the housing crisis involves new builds, new, new, build, new build apartments for, primarily apartments for uh, 
middle-class Chinese people who could afford them, uh, or who thought they could afford them. And some of these banks have essentially shut down uh, that would that were taking their money because you pay for the mortgage before you even get to the apartment. Uh, and they're left with having lost everything at the moment. Uh, and, and this is an extremely volatile situation inside China, which is very hard to track exactly, but could burst out at any time. There's also a question about the stability of the renminbi, the Chinese currency, uh, and its valuation. Uh, and, and, and that is the problem, especially with the downturn in the rest of the world, because China is an export-oriented country. It, to, to be able to keep up its pace of development, it needs to export. Uh, and if people can't buy the goods that are being manufactured or don't want to, uh, it's a real problem for the Chinese. And then you have this very strange phenomena in China of these massive lockdowns in various cities, ostensibly because of the COVID uh, uh, pandemic. And yet, in these cases, we see that maybe there's 25 or 50, sometimes 100 cases, but very small level of infection. But even so, the Chinese authorities lock down the town. Now, these are big towns. So the question is, what's going on here? Is it just an overreaction, you know, that they're really scared? And that could be. Um, but Taiwan, which is, you know, a bellwether in this case, they've got people wearing masks, but they're not locking down. So they're coping. The other thing is the Chinese health support system, let's call it that, is quite poor and certainly unable to handle um, infectious epidemics. It's rather odd, in fact, that the Chinese are persisting in developing biological weapons where they, when they themselves are so utterly vulnerable. But that's the facts. So you have a China that's in a very uncertain moment. Um, its productivity is down, its economy is, is wavering, its currency is weak, uh, may have to be re-devalued. Uh, uh, it's, it's got cities that are locked down. It's got middle-class people who are not going to get their apartments and they're going to lose their savings. Um, that's, you know, that's bad stuff. And the usual consequences of that are some kind of upheaval internally, or to head it off some kind of externalizing of, this, of the internal problem. That's a classic political science uh, doctrine. You know, Hitler uh, comes to power in, in Germany after the Weimar Republic, a disaster from an economic point of view, and many other ways. And he externalized, you know, he almost immediately starts to externalize uh, Germany's problems by uh, Czechoslovakia and Poland and Austria first, Czechoslovakia, Poland, and so on, Sudetenland, the whole thing, and eventually even Russia and, and Western Europe. So, so what you what you have is 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 a case, a classical case, 
that political science had predicted, German political scientists had predicted in the 30s, was likely to happen. Happened. Are we going to see that again? Was, you know, this is a this is a concern. It's a, it's a big concern. Now, also there are developments in in, in East Asia, North and North and East Asia, which are troubling. Uh, both Japan and Taiwan are are extremely nervous. I think that the U.S. is not going to protect them in the conflict. Unfortunately, for both of them, actually, neither is prepared for a conflict. Neither. The Japanese have underinvested in their defense for years, thinking they could rely on the U.S. nuclear deterrent, and that was enough, and they could spend their money elsewhere. And they spent well less than 2% of their, their gross domestic product on, on defense. As you know, constitutionally, Japan is limited on what it can do uh, with its army, navy, and marines, and, and coast guard, for that matter, and, 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 and the Air, Air Force. Uh, those limits come from the Constitution because uh, trying to make sure that Japan would not become an aggressive imperialistic po power in future after World War II. And so the Japanese military are called self-defense forces, home defense forces. Um, and, and it's only starting to change and get away from that, those restrictions. And there have been suggestions in Japan to change the constitution, but they're probably, at least now, not, a, not any ability to, to politically to get those changes. Um, Taiwan is also a problem. They also underspend on defense. People don't realize that. But uh, Taiwan has, has, has two problems, actually. One is they have not spent nearly enough on their own defensive capabilities, uh, something that's not generally understood in the United States. Uh, and the other is they're having, they've had in recent years the great difficulty in recruiting uh, military personnel. They don't have conscription anymore in Taiwan. Um, but even when they had it, you know, the, the level of commitment by the young people to defending the island has been, uh, how can we say, shaky at best, uh, and sometimes less than that. Uh, hadn't led to protests, but it leads to malaise. Uh, now, maybe the, the current circumstances will change things, but uh, Taiwan has a ways to go. And so they really do need the, the United States, but uh, and so does Japan, but whether U.S. will respond is still, I would say the, the jury is still out. Now, the other thing to note is that Japan and Taiwan are pretty close, even though they don't have political, you know, official or diplomatic relations between the two countries, uh, they're, they're talking all the time. Uh, there's some problems with that, uh, which I'll explain. Well, I can tell you now. The biggest problem is that the, the Japanese military and the Taiwanese military are not uh, coordinated. There's no common command. 
there's no uh, system of deconfliction. There's no ways of separating in, in a friend or foe, for example. All that's missing. And they don't exercise together at all. So that's that's a, a problem, and it's, it's even worse than that. We'll come back to that in, in, a, in a while. But Japan sees itself, its security, dependent on what happens to Taiwan. In other words, what the Japanese are fearful of is that if Taiwan went uh, in, or fell into under the control of China, that uh, Japan would be in a terrible position uh, because... Uh, uh, it would find that its access uh, to the sea, uh, its ability to operate would be ser seriously restricted. Um, and if it happened, trust in the United States would go to just about zero. Uh, and Japan would have to find some way to reconcile itself with, uh, with uh, Taiwan. I will tell you there's no love lost between uh, Japan and China. Although they, you know, there's lots of business between Japan and China, uh, ostensibly they have a peaceful, uh, positive relationship, but it's a, it's a lot trickier than that. So back in the '80s, I remember when Casper Weinberger, who was Secretary of Defense at the time, uh, made a trip to China and Japan, and so he arrived in Beijing, of course, and. That is the, all the formal parts of the visit. And just near the end, they pulled him aside and said, Mr. Secretary, we, we would like to tell you something. Oh, he said, tell me. Oh, you understand you're going to Japan? Yes, I am, he said. Can't trust those people. They're very dangerous people. Uh, you should be advised that it's a very bad idea for you to go to Japan. Of course, a couple of days later, he, he arrives in in. Tokyo and meets with Japanese uh, senior leaders. They had a very good defense minister in those days. And the defense minister pulled them apart and said, I see you were just in China. He said, yes, I was. He said, those are absolute terrible people. They're, they're, they're a menace to the world. They're, they're dangerous. It would be better if you didn't go there. <laughs> in, in other words, this is... Uh, this was a lesson for Mr. Weinberger, who was, by the way, a great Secretary of Defense. Uh, and, it, and it's an indication of the history, because as you know, there's a bitter history between Japan and China. And the Chinese have some real gripes, because what the Japanese did before we're in the 30s, and then, of course, during World War II, to the Chinese is, was, was awful, horrible, appalling. And, and that has not been forgotten. It will never be forgotten. Finally, and uh, the other part of the concern is, is that Taiwan physically sits in the middle of what's called the first island chain, that chain of islands that stretches down from the north of northern part of Japan all the way down to the end of the South China Sea. Taiwan is the, is the most important uh, island, the largest and most important, uh, from a strategic point of view, it controls the straits and access from the East China Sea and all that. Uh, if it if it went into Chinese hands, it would be a major. It would make it would would give China practical control of the first island chain. 
sooner or later. It, it would be inevitable. And, and then the strategic challenge for the United States is we would be behind that, that chain and trapped both Okinawa and our bases in Japan. And, and it's part of China's policy, frankly, to push the United States back to Guam if possible, or in their more expressive dreams to push the United States back to Alaska and, and, and Hawaii if possible. So that, that, that's a kind of strategic goal, not one that they can realize tomorrow morning, but, but it informs their strategic outlook. So what did we do? Uh, we, our study uh, came up with 34, we call them game-changing findings and recommendations. So I put a hypersonic glide missile on the left-hand picture to indicate game-changing. Uh, we think that these 34 findings, if they were taken seriously in Washington, would play a major role in reestablishing deterrence in the Pacific and would be especially important to Taiwan's security, but also to Japan's and Korea's as well. I, I, I didn't spend much time on Korea in this, in fact, not at all in this presentation, but I want to mention a couple of things which are, of, I think, of importance. Korea is actually in air miles closer to Taiwan than Japan from the existing Japanese airfields. So that's a significant point. We have a large troop presence in Korea. We have an Air Force presence in Korea. And we have a naval presence that operates in and around Korea. So Korea is a very important player. Of course, Korea is primarily occupied with the problem of North Korea, which is a nuclear problem as well as a conventional military problem. And I don't know if you saw the recent, uh, recent yesterday, announcement by Kim Jong-un uh, and, and the North Korean uh, parliament approving uh, its new position on nuclear weapons, which basically says, one, North Korea is a nuclear power and tends to stay a nuclear power. So any talk about the negotiating its nuclear capabilities is off the table as far as they're concerned. And secondly, that they will respond to any threat to their leadership with nuclear weapons. That is different because that goes way beyond um, what anyone would consider a reasonable concept. Uh, because how you determine what is a determine what a threat is to someone's leadership is not entirely discernible. So this is a kind of a uh, a reckless Korean statement. So South Koreans, I think, I think the consequence of this will be probably that South Korea will have to develop its own nuclear capabilities. This is my guess. Because otherwise they have to rely on the U.S. responding, and I don't know, I think the U.S. would probably, but whether they would respond quickly enough to protect South Korea is one of those questions nobody can answer. Now, our group's findings and recommendations are founded on the need for a solid and proactive U.S. leadership and what our group calls the whole-of-government approach to security in the Pacific region. 
I won't, I don't think we can argue right now that we have a whole of government approach. We have factions in the government, in the State Department, in the Defense Department, even in the White House, who either want to do more things with China and don't want to get tied up with Taiwan. They see China as the number one competitor to the U.S. And I think that we can both be cooperative and competitive, but they go down that road. They want to, so they push against anything that would, that would suggest that we might fight for Taiwan in one way or another. Um, and as I said, they're in all three agencies. So we have to somehow have a, 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 a whole of government approach, and we don't have it yet. We don't have it at all, but we need it. And so that was our, now how you get that, how you actually demonstrate that you have that is not so simple, but it can be done. I mean, there are ways to, to strengthen the U.S. political position, but we're not doing it exactly. Uh, I'll talk more about that in a minute. Now, the, the, the most important two recommendations that we make, one is very tangible and real, and the other one is very, how can we say, it's a policy suggestion or proposal. Now, the tangible and real need that we don't have today is the need for a common command structure in the Pacific. You would think that the U.S., Japan, Korea, Taiwan work together under a common command structure like NATO has. And the answer is there's no such thing. It doesn't exist. There's not even a command structure between the US and Japan. There is a bit of one between the US and Korea, and there's nothing with Taiwan. But that's, that's a very bad situation. Because if a conflict breaks out for any reason, and the US wants to insert forces, it has to work with the local forces that are available for a whole lot of reasons. How do, you have to be able, you know, when, you, when you're using long-range weapons, like air-to-air uh, -air missiles, like AIM-9, uh, not AIM-9, AIM-120, um, you, you you're not going to see the enemy uh, physically. You're going to only see them as a radar blip. And if you're not sure who they are, what do you do? Now, with modern IFF capabilities, and coordination, you know who's where. And you're sharing radar targets and radar information. But if you're not sharing that, it's it's much messier, much more dangerous. And that's just one example. Uh, there are many, many others. How do you coordinate your, your missile defenses? How do you coordinate your naval capabilities? How do you coordinate your shore defense? I mean, it goes on and on. Uh, the point is it doesn't exist. We, we don't have it. Uh, I, I think for a long time, the attitude in Washington was that local forces didn't amount to hill of beans anyway, and we can just go and do our thing if we need to. And otherwise, you know, I'm not going to worry about it. But those times are gone if they were ever real in the first place. And the need for a common command structure and coordination is urgent. And yet Washington still hasn't done anything about it. Totally. It's just not happening. So this was our 
tangible, most I think most single most important recommendation. Secondly, as you know, the US official policy restated again this week by the White House National Security Council is strategic ambiguity, you know. The US is favors a peaceful resolution of the Taiwan-China conflict. Uh, we, don't, uh, we don't support Taiwan independence and so forth and so on. Uh, there's ways around that, but we have to stop this ambiguity stuff and start saying we support Taiwan. Not necessarily to be an independent country, although we could say that if we wanted to, but not necessarily for that reason, but because we need to do things with Taiwan that we're not doing now. And we have to resolve this complicated, you know, when I was in Defense Department, and this has been true until very recently, I was not allowed to, to go to Taiwan as a government official. I was a senior official, I was a deputy undersecretary of defense, but I couldn't go there. I couldn't meet with Taiwanese people in the United States, you know, military guys. And they have military guys here in the U.S., uh, I, I it was verboten. It wasn't allowed. Uh, American military people couldn't go to Taiwan for any reason. You couldn't land an airplane in Taiwan. It was a huge crisis when two uh, two U.S. Uh, aircraft. I think I think they were uh, Marine aircraft, Marine fighters. Um, had burned too much fuel and needed to land in Taiwan, <coughs> and did so. Um, it created a, a real furor with uh, China, but it also made people in the Pentagon and the State Department apoplectic, apoplectic. So, you know, those are things that just can't continue. Okay, so these are our two major recommendations. Secondly, or thirdly, I guess, uh, we're very keen on the idea of maintaining regional air superiority. So, keeping a large and capable force of aircraft in the region, both in Japan, Okinawa, and Guam, and, and other places if we can, because there's some possibilities of other arrangements, uh, is really important. And we don't want to thin out those capabilities. We want to keep them as, as strong as we possibly can. I will say, that this idea is, is gaining some acceptance in DOD, in the Pentagon. Uh, and there has been some good steps in reinforcing uh, some of the U.S. capabilities, especially on Guam with uh, strategic bombers and with uh, uh, strong uh, uh, protective bunkers and with... Uh, uh, caches of supplies. Second, we really need to improve Taiwan's air and coastal defenses. Um, this is going to be difficult because we don't have a lot to offer at the moment in terms of air defenses. In fact, one of the great weaknesses uh, in the U.S. scheme, military scheme, is the lack of adequate air defense capabilities. We just don't have, you know, it's not like Israel where they have layer air defense from, from the strategic Arrow 3, Arrow 2, down to uh, various uh, David Sling and, and uh, what's called Iron Dome, and then the lesser ones against for 
drones and stuff like that. I mean, they have all that and, it, and it's increasingly well integrated. We don't have any integration, whatever, in our forces, it just doesn't exist. So we're way behind on this in terms of air defense. In the naval defense area, we're, we're improving. And that, and by the way, if you want to know why we don't have integrated air defenses, I can, I can tell you that a lot of that's because we have an, an iron rice bowl when it comes to who makes this stuff and the lack of competition in this field and, and the lack of, and to a certain degree, in my humble opinion, uh, a lack of initiative. But we come to uh, coastal defenses. We are bucking up the Taiwanese capability. But this new Norwegian system that I mentioned, that's that's a picture of it, would be a big addition and very valuable, uh, would be a major challenge for the Chinese. Uh, but that's a few years off if we do it. But right now, there's not much conversation about it. Uh, now, there's some do's and don'ts. One of the don'ts is, is don't require, don't retire any F-22. The F-22, as you know, is a stealth aircraft. It's getting, it's aging, uh, but it is a remarkable airplane. Uh, it's remarkable because it's all aspects of stealth and it's, it's, just, it's a strategic aircraft with long range. It is, I think, the single major fighter bomber that frightens China. The Pentagon has proposed in the budget retiring 22 of them. Uh, they can't be replaced. There are no more. They're, not only are they out of production, but there's no possibility of producing them again. Those 22 airplanes are very important. Uh, and then our second bullet is deploy those to Japan. Fix them up and get them into Japan because by the way, the Japanese desperately wanted to buy F-22s, but were never able to buy them because the U.S. would the U.S. Uh, could not sell them because Congress, there's congressional legislation that was passed and signed into law that says the U.S. may not cannot export the F-22. Now there's there's there are creative ways around that problem. There there certainly could be creative ways around. They could be lend lease. They could be rented. I mean, there, there are different ways to skin that cat, but nobody tried uh, because all the emphasis was to throw money into the F-35 and dump off the F-22, which is a very expensive airplane. I don't, it's very costly, but the, the deterrence value for the F-22 is huge because it's not going to be knocked out by any Chinese air defense system. And it's not going to be knocked out by any Chinese fighter aircraft. So we recommend don't retire any of them. Deploy them to Japan, either under the U.S. Air Force or give them to the Japanese and let them deploy them. They know what to do with them. The other is in terms of naval combatants. So the, what you're looking at here is a Ticonderoga class, an Arleigh Burke class. Um, cruisers, destroyer and cruisers, that are that are equipped with the Aegis air defense system. The, the, I think probably the Aegis at sea, that version of it that's uh, at, at sea, 
uh, is the best air defense capability that we have. Uh, unfortunately, and I think it's very unfortunate, uh, Japan, which had originally intended to buy a land-based version of Aegis called Aegis Assure, uh, abandoned the idea when there was local opposition to stationing them in certain places in Japan, on Japanese territory. Uh, this deprived Japan and the United States, and for that matter, Taiwan too, of a 24-7 air defense capability. Air defenses on ships are not 24-7. Ships have to go into port for service. They have to be replenished. Um, they can only operate in good weather. There are a lot of restrictions. Uh, they can't stay at sea that long. I mean, all these things affect shipboard air defenses. But by the same token, they're very good systems. The, the U.S. Navy is starting to retire the Ticonderoga-class cruisers. They're old. There's no doubt they're old. But they're absolutely serviceable. And with small investments, they can be kept on the seas for another decade or more. So it's a very bad idea to, to, to do that. Uh, I had written an article for Asia Times and said, if, you really, if we're really serious and we want to uh, send them to the scrapyard, change, our, change that and send them to Taiwan, let them have them. We give them a much better air defense system than they have right now. Uh, and then they could be, they could be uh, modernized in some ways. They could actually be just tied up in port and used from there. They don't nearly need to go at sea. In any case, uh, that's one of our recommendations. Now we come to something that's really significant. Uh, if I were to ask you how many American trainers there are for Taiwanese forces, you might scratch your head and not know the answer. Or you might say there's only a handful. There's actually only 12. Uh, 12 guys are not going to train the Taiwanese army or the Marines or the Navy or anybody else in, in Taiwan. Uh, and, and those 12 are better than what we had in the past, which was zero. And we weren't training them in the United States. The only thing we train at all in the United States are Taiwan pilots, and only there on a limited basis. So the, the argument we make is that we have to step up this training. We have to help Taiwan modernize how it runs its military and how it trains its soldiers. And I, I think we're very good at it, but we, we you know, it's, it's something that's a political decision to do it. It's, there's no reason, you know, if you have 12, you can have a hundred in my opinion, if you have a hundred, you can have 500. So it's, it's not that it's just a lack of, of initiative on the part of the Defense Department and certainly on the part of the White House and State Department to let it happen. But it's very critical because we need them to be as professional as possible and we need them to be as plugged into how we do things as possible because we're gonna have to cooperate if there's a crisis. So this was one of our suggestions. Uh, as I already mentioned, High Mars, uh, is a very important system. It's very important not only because it can take out land targets, but it can take out sea targets. Uh, it can take out anything that moves, provided you have the 
uh, overhead intelligence to find the targets for you. Now, the Marines, as I said, have the uh, HIMARS. The, the Japanese have a tracked version of it. Question is, where are they? If they're on Okinawa, they're too far away from Taiwan to, to defend Taiwanese, uh, the Taiwanese coast. Uh, but uh, there's a nice little island off the coast of, well, it's a part of the Senkaku chain. It's the very end of it called Yonaguni. It's Japanese owned. And right now, by the way, the, there's a big running uh, challenge, let's call it that, a challenge between China and Japan over these islands. Uh, the, these islands have been administered uh, by Japan since the end of World War II. Um, and that was recognized actually in the San Francisco Treaty. But having said all that, the Chinese say they're, they belong to China. By the way, they also say Okinawa belongs to China, so it doesn't end there. Um, and, and what they've been doing is running uh, armed Coast Guard operations with large numbers of Chinese Coast Guard vessels. And so Japan has deployed a number of its Coast Guard vessels to defend these islands. Most of them are uninhabited, but Yonaguni isn't. It has a popula small population, has an airfield. Um, it has a port. And it's a very neat little island. It's 67 statute miles from Taiwan. So it's well within the range of high mars. And so the idea which we had suggested is move, move uh, a marine detachment to Yonaguni. There's no political reason not to do it. You know, Chinese can complain all day, but if the U.S. wants to, and Japan wants to, we can do it. And I think Japan wants to. So it's it's really up to us. It hasn't happened yet, but it may be a good time to to push that very hard, because HIMARS, as we've demonstrated in Ukraine, is a really good system, and it would be very a big deterrent to the Chinese. Um, and you don't have to fly airplanes from thousands of miles away. They're, they would be right there, right in the right place. And because HIMARS is a shoot and scoot, it's very hard to, to track it and to destroy it. This is Yonaguni, an island that I mentioned. Um, and I said 67 miles, so I, I remember my facts correctly. Um, incidentally, the previous Japanese emperor, just before he, uh, I guess you would call it retired, uh, visited Yonaguni, and as the Japanese press said, he waved to his friends in Taiwan. It was an, a, def, a, a political move by the emperor uh, with the support of the Japanese government. And here's a nice map of Taiwan, just to give you an idea. If you look across to the left side, I don't know if I can put a point. Can you see the pointer if I put it? No, maybe you can. There's Xiamen. This is Amoy, this big uh, landmass here. And this yellow area over here in the uh, Chimentau area, this is Kinmen, the county of Kinmen. You can see how close it is. And, and then if you look all the way across the other side, and you go to the last island over here, this is Yonaguni. Okay. So let me 
uh, end of screen sharing, if I can. Uh, I don't think I did it right. Hold on just a minute. Um, I'm trying to get to the point where I can open this up. No, I don't know where I went. Can you still hear me? Uh, yes. Can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you. Now let me see if I can, if I can uh, properly. Uh, here we go. Oh, okay. And I think I. Are, are we still scare, sharing the screen or no more? No, no, no more. Okay, great, good. All right, so that's that's sort of, a, a, in a nutshell, what I have to, had to say. Um, I'd be glad to answer, uh, answer any questions anyone has. Great, thank you so much. That's a wonderful presentation. Uh, give us the up-to-date and the overview of the whole situation. So anybody, if you have any question, please uh, click raise hand and you can uh, speak out. Uh, okay, uh, Merlene, just one second. Merlene. Go ahead, Merlene. Am I unmuted? Yes. Okay, uh, question about the islands under Taiwanese control very close to the China coast. Obviously, they're expensive and difficult to equip, supply, and so on. Uh, uh, they, they risk accidental war with China. What is the benefit to those islands other than annoying China? <laughs> well, the Taiwanese consider them part of their territory, so we'll start there. I mean, it's like uh, uh, Puerto Rico to the United States. It's expensive, annoying. Should we give it up? Um, Are they populated? <laughs> uh, yes, it is. Uh, Kimen has a pretty good sized population. I forget the number, but it's a few hundred thousand at least. It's probably bigger than that. Mm -hmm. uh, it has a, a fairly nice airport. Uh, it's, uh, you know, it, it, it thinks of itself mostly as Taiwanese. So it, it would, it, I think that, that uh, Taiwan is, is uh, actually, it's never been on the table that they should give it up. So, oh, it's a, uh, Puerto Rico is not a potential flashpoint. I just, you know, risk versus benefit. Oh, you I don't know, the Spanish may come back. You can't be sure. You never know. Right? Okay, never thank know. you. Thanks. <laughs> yes, uh, Daniel has a question here. Can you hear me? Yes. Um, I have a question. Um, are, are we able to... Um, um, develop um, laser systems on on destroyers and on land base in a new feature, just in case if we do go war with China. Do you think that's capable? It could happen in the future if if we don't able have able to produce enough technology to help our allies. Uh, well, the U.S. has been working on lasers for some time. You know, for. Uh, where the army and the navy has, even the air force has got. Because working when, on. when I see uh, it on, the but I don't think it's deployed, and you know any of it's deployed at the moment. 
the Israelis are working on lasers for, you know, drone defense. Um, but I, I don't, you know, I don't see that as a short term. There, there, it's not a short term because there's, there's none in the pipeline. Yeah. Um, the reason why I ask this is because um, I it was United States and China and Taiwan. We all have very high tech technologies, but yeah. there is there's always a risk of because so many of these jets on both sides are hot, very fast, high tech. You know, it's very hard to detect them. Lasers are faster than missiles. I know they're more expensive, but they could easily could take out a lot of Chinese aircrafts and their drones because China could use a lot of their suicide drones that take out small targets. Well, there's, there's two sides to that story, um, which the Israelis have been talking a bit about. I mean, a laser can destroy a missile, okay, or a drone. But you have to keep the laser on it for some period of time, seconds. So in a saturation type attack, unless you have lots of lasers uh, and lots of power, you have a problem. So there are some limitations. Um, plus there are weather limitations to lasers. They don't do well in clouds, and fog, rain. So there, there are limitations. I, I'm, I'm, I, you know, I, I don't have a good answer for you because it may well be that in future uh, non-kinetic weapons like lasers will become uh, more, uh, more popular, let's say. By the way, before, I'm, before I leave it, and I didn't discuss it, uh, Taiwan has a lot of high tech, as you know. Uh, and one of those most important of all is Taiwan Semi. Uh, Taiwan Semiconductor is, is, I think today, the world's most advanced fab uh, fabrication facility in the world. Um, and I think it's working down to three nanometer feature size, which is incredibly small. Uh, these chips are, going to be exceedingly important, not only for commercial reasons for the auto industry, for example, but uh, they're gonna be very important for military applications. And of course, one of the big uh, things that is, that is very important in military development these days is artificial intelligence and the design and use of, of chips that, that can carry out uh, artificial intelligence calculations and operations. Uh, and uh, right now for what's needed and fast enough, a fast enough and low power enough chips for various weapons, uh, that's Taiwan. So uh, in fact, a lot of people have speculated that if China ever got in a, a war with uh, Taiwan, they would not touch Taiwan Semi. It would want it very badly. Anyway, just to, I just wanted to mention that. I have one more question. Um, do you think um, the, um, the the F three fives and the European um, um, their, I don't know pick up what they're called, but their top end jets? Do you think them and F three fives could um, win the dogfight with China if we deployed them at the air base in Taiwan? 
Well, the the the, the advantage of the F thirty five is its stealthiness. The disadvantage of the F thirty five is it's not a very good turning aircraft, so it's not good for close close in fighting. And one of the difficulties with the China and Taiwan is is that the the distances are quite small. So if you bring in these aircraft, um, there's there's that problem that, the, that tends to cancel out some of the virtues of the F-35 because the distances are tight. Um, uh, there are no F-35s uh, in Taiwan's Air Force today. The, we're, we're going to be sending them and not built yet new F-16s, new I version of the F-16, which is an advanced version. And we're upgrading their old F-16s and their very old F-16s to go back to the 91, 92 with uh, new radars and many other uh, new uh, systems, but they don't have the power, the engine power or the uh, some of the other features of the new aircraft. Uh, Thank you. The big threat for Taiwan's air air deployment, let's call it that, is that its airfields are very exposed to Chinese missile attack. And the Taiwanese have been playing with, I say playing because I don't think it's it's a hard capability now, with playing with something like uh, using roadways as a place to launch uh, aircraft and recover aircraft and re, re uh, you know rearm them and all that stuff. Uh, some of our friends in Europe do that, uh, and I've seen it. I actually saw it in Sweden. It was pretty impressive. But you know, again, uh, whether that's the other alternative would be a a vertical takeoff aircraft such as. Uh, there's a version of the F-35, the C, I think it's the C, that's a vertical takeoff airplane. But the trade-off on that is you give up a lot of capability in terms of range and carrying power to have that vertical takeoff. So I don't know that that uh, that's the right answer. I mean, I, I think the, the right answer is that is that Taiwan's gonna need help to defend its airspace. And uh, that help's going to have to come from elsewhere, from Japan, Okinawa. Guam's too far back for uh, fighter planes, way too far back. You'd have to refuel and it would be a huge mess. So I think that now we don't have any uh, US F-35s on the Japanese territory. We, we have some of the short range F-35s on Okinawa that belong to the Marines, but not very many. Um, and that's about it. There are no F-22s. I, I think F-22 is the right answer. Uh, I think it could take out anything the Chinese fly. The, the U.S. Air Forces and the Navy, too, are fairly confident that they can, they can handle the, the Chinese Air Force. I'll leave, I'm not going to go beyond that, but they are confident, even now. So, and even without the F-22s. So, um, that's the you, sh you should think about that. Thank you. I have uh, a question. 
Go ahead. Yes, thank you. Um, you've spoken a great deal about uh, surface-to-air weaponry and assets. Um, projecting onto a potential conflict and the ramifications, what does it portend if it goes into a space-based domain, particularly with respect to the articles of the Outer Space Treaty? Well, that's a global conflict, isn't it? I mean, that's not just going to be around Taiwan. Um, uh, there's, there's always the argument that Chinese, you know, the Chinese have the capability of, of destroying a number of our satellites. They already have that capability. Um, and some of those satellites provide overhead and uh, communications for our fighting forces. A lot of that stuff's classified, so um, I don't know how much I can say, but but I think the, the bottom line is that uh, the only way to, to stop that sort of thing would be to knock out the Chinese missiles that are capable of hitting our satellites. So I think if they tried it, we would respond. Does that answer your question? The space treaty, yes. I, that, nobody worries about treaties anymore. <laughs> You <laughs> can forget about it. The I know they're not binding, but we don't have such regulations with respect to outer space activities. So yes, I know, of course, China, you know, the Chinese have participated in ASAT as well as the Russians yeah. and um, et cetera. So I was just curious about that, but thank you for taking my question and answering it. I hope I, I gave you an adequate answer. I don't, I don't, I'm not, uh, I'm not really an expert on, on outer space capabilities and weapons, but uh, I think it's, I think in the future it's going to grow. It's obviously going to grow in, in importance. In, incidentally, one of the things we could exploit and uh, would give us a very interesting capability would be Elon Musk's uh, uh, Starlink system, because you can't destroy it. There are too many of them thousands of satellites. And, uh, and I know the Chinese have um, entered a complaint at the UN specifically related to the Starlink. And of course, they've been very instrumental yeah. in the uh, Ukrainian defense. So. Yeah. so let them go ahead and complain. This is a great sign when they complain because then you know it must work. Do you agree? Yes, exactly. <laughs> um, I mean, look, the UN is, is a nice organization which gives people employment who have nothing else to do, um, but it's worthless from the point of view of strategic issues. That's my view. Anybody that would rely on the UN is have to be mad or certainly on the edge. I'm not a fan, to put it that way. Yes, they seem like an impotent institution. Well, I mean, it's, you know, first of all, if it's anything important, it'll be vetoed by one of the great powers, right? So you can start there. It's mostly just a nuisance.
Um, yeah, thank you, Linda. Uh, uh, Stan has a question. Stan, go ahead. Uh, your mic is enabled. Can you hear me okay? Yes, I can. Thank you, sir. I really appreciate your presentation, Dr. Brian. That was fantastic, and we're honored to have you here. Uh, you showed a picture in the presentation of an oceanal hypersonic glide vehicle. Right. Do you see any significant uh, role for that kind of machine in this kind of a conflict? No. No, not now. I mean, you know, 10 years from now, it might be a whole different story because there's going to be tactical hypersonic weapons. And it's going to be a challenge to deal with them, I think. But they're not, you know, we're still at the very early days of those kinds of things. The Russians have fired off a few of them in Ukraine to no effect. Um, right. I was just wondering if, uh, if your task force uh, study group looked at those roles, and that's why you had the picture in there. But if not, that's fine. Thanks no, very much. I just, put it, I just put it there because I liked it. Okay. Thank you, sir. Appreciate <laughs> it. I should mention that that's, you know, that's intended as a nuclear weapon. It's a, it's, it's a, it's a, you know, the Russians already claim to have such a thing and have demonstrated it's a fractional orbit system. Um, and it's the advantage of it is it's almost impossible today. It's almost impossible to shoot down. But it's almost impossible to shoot down an ICBM. So I'm not sure whether it really contributes anything particularly new to the to the nuclear deterrence picture, one way or the other. We can't, you know, it's not it's not possible to counter ballistic missiles, heavy ballistic missiles, with any degree of certainty that you can knock them out. Nobody's got such a system. We know, you know, the, the so-called, the, the best thing we have allegedly is the ground-based mid-course interceptor. We have, I think the number is 43 uh, missiles in uh, Vandenberg Air Force Base and in Greeley, Alaska, if I remember correctly. Uh, but they're all stood down right now because the missiles are no good. So the, the, the U.S. is trying to build new new missiles because it doesn't want to use the Israeli Arrow 3 missile that happens to work. Uh, <laughs> it's all politics. So, I mean, so you, right now we don't have, for for our country, for the United States, any credible missile defense system. That's another subject, but it's a very serious one because with all these actors getting missile capabilities, whether it's the Chinese, well, they already have it, or the Russians, which already have it, or the North Koreans, which are getting it or may have it, um, or the Iranians, which may have it, and so on, that the, the, the or India, which hasn't, I mean, Pakistan, which has something. Uh, so we're getting into an environment that is very complicated, and we're, we don't have any, you know, the mad doctrine, Mutually assured destruction. That's what MAD stands for. The MAD doctrine postulated two powers, Russia, Soviet Union at the time, and the United States uh, being able to destroy each other so that neither one um, was going to survive a, a nuclear exchange. Um, and even so, and, and, and then we had a thing called the ABM Treaty, which limited 
the amount of anti-ballistic missile defenses you could have, and the U.S. gave up all of it anyway. Um, the Russians kept uh, one system around Moscow, as far as I know. Uh, whether it works or not, who knows? But uh, so this kind of doctrine was postulated on a bipolar standoff, if you want. When you have a multipolar threat of strategic ballistic missiles, it's very uncertain. The level of uncertainty goes way up because with Russia, you you know, which is a nuclear power, big one, you know, you could you could figure out a way to counterbalance them, and you could also talk to them. You can negotiate with them, but you can't negotiate with the North Koreans is impossible. You can't negotiate really with the Iranians except on stuff they want from us, um, and I really mean that. Um, who knows about China? China never joined any arms control agreement at all many in significance. Uh, so you have this, this multipolar global threat, which makes the world far more dangerous. And we have no, co uh, we call CONUS, Continental United States defenses against them that work. We have one system in Greeley, Alaska, and Vandenberg, California, which is really theoretically uh, to, supposed to deal with a threat from North Korea. But it doesn't work, and that's it. There's nothing else. So uh, I think that, that you know people refuse to you know there's a big opposition to missile defense, uh, strategic missile defense, uh, in the scientific community, especially uh, who, for ideological reasons, oppose it. But they're out of date. You know they're from the '60s when by when a when a bipolar problem existed. Now we have a multipolar nuclear threat to the world, and we can't protect our territory. It's a different issue. Sorry, I just yapped too long. Yeah, thank you, Dr. Brian. This is amazing. Uh, wonderful talk and uh, truly appreciate for your uh, uh, speech and uh, uh, analysis. So uh, we'll, we'll stay in touch. And uh, well, uh, because all everything you touch here is highly related to AIAA, you know, many Absolutely. folks working. Yeah. Well, uh, that's why I agreed to do it, Ken. Thank yeah. you very much for having me. I'm going to uh, go watch football. Okay. Thank you. Appreciate thank it. You. Stay Bye. in touch. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Okay. Our next speaker, um, <clears throat> uh, uh, Salam is here. Uh, let's see. Let me at him here. Uh, yes, I'm sorry for, for the short delay because we were in a very interesting discussion. Uh, so thank you so much for joining us here. So let me briefly show uh, your bio, uh, not a, a short title, so we can uh, uh, kind of, let's see, wait a second. All right, here. Uh, so, our speaker uh, for this uh, amazing James Webb Space Telescope IR camera images uh, is Mr. Salam Amara. He's a solar NASA JPL Solar System Ambassador. Uh, himself is uh, working on the high tech. I, I, actually, the previous speaker actually talked about Taiwan Semiconductor. Uh, company oh, TSMC, you know, and uh, this is a very important strategic semiconductor company. And uh, uh, Mr. Amara actually working in San Diego uh, for a startup 
uh, semiconductor company. He's a senior director of engineering for that company. Uh, in the, he's uh, uh, working high tech, and uh, you know James Webb also applied for the the, the advanced state of the art optics and uh, electronics. So we are so uh, happy and uh, uh, great pleasure to have uh, Mr. Salam Amara uh, to speak to us about this exciting uh, invisible beauty through James Webb Space Telescope infrared cameras. Uh, so without further ado, let's welcome uh, Mr. Salam Amara. Thank you very much. It sounds like I missed uh, this uh, very interesting uh, uh, discussions about TSMC. Um, Definitely TSMC one of the most important, and in, I think actually the most important company today in uh, in semiconductor field, right? Like all of us, I I, I engage with TSMC for my, all my career, basically, uh, for the last 25 years or so. I see, very yeah. good. Yeah, so uh, anyhow, so I'm, I'm gonna go ahead and start, and um, uh, let me share my screen with me. Actually, uh, yes, go ahead. Yeah, I think actually I have to go to, yeah, I need to share, but maybe I should share before I uh, share. And go here and I go. That is coming up. Okay, sounds good. Great. So, uh, audio check, can you hear me? Yes. Okay, good. Okay, so um, let's go ahead and start. Um, uh, my name is uh, Salami Mara. I'm, uh, I'm part of uh, these volunteering organizations belong to NASA called um, Solar System Ambassadors. So its organization has uh, five, around like 500 uh, volunteers in, around USA. And and uh, typically we give talks uh, or like organize events on behalf of uh, GPL and NASA. Okay, so um, uh, today actually like I would like to just cover like um, before I introduce some of the new images um, from James Webb Space Telescopes and everyone excited about, um, I wanna just give a brief background, okay? and how we get there, okay? And I slightly, I'm not gonna go in little in, de in, in details, but I'm gonna basically present slight and for more informations, okay, about one of the instruments on James uh, Webb, which is uh, NIRCAM. And based on these discussions, I'm gonna basically present a couple of images, recent images, um, everywhere uh, it's very famous now in the uh, on the internet about James Webb. So um, I'm sure by now everyone saw a lot of read a lot of news and a literature. There is the exposure to a James Webb. I think actually was phenomenal, right? Like everyone knows what is James Webb. So so that was basically saved me some time. So say what is James Webb Space Telescope. I hope actually. So hopefully, like everyone in, already heard that something uh, about James Webb by now. Okay. Um, so to start the discussions, I just basically let us go briefly uh, about the microwave spectrum. Okay, which is um, we know it is uh, uh, the um, sorry the electromagnetic spectrum, 
which we know that is at the high frequency side, it goes from uh, gamma rays and X-rays and it goes to um, um, uh, uh, UV. Then comes the visible, then the near infrared, uh, or like the IR, then of course the radio waves. So the focus for today discussions, we just, of course, like we're not gonna cover everything on, on the, um, uh, James Webb is only designed to look only at the near infrared and mid infrared. So to basically say the terminology, what when we talk about near infrared, we're talking about like from red to the um, two and a half micron. So that is basically the number two and a half microns is just the wavelengths of the of, of the um, of the electromagnetic, right? So if you look in here, can you see my uh, my uh, my mouse? So um, like the the blue, uh, like the ultraviolet or like the blue start from 0.4 to 0.7 something. Okay, this is this is this is the red, and anything after that from this up to uh, 100 uh, micrometer is basically we we call it the infrared. So there is very interesting science can be done on this very long um, infrared, which is, we call it the, at the 100 micron, right? Um, that is, we call it the sub-millimeter waves. And there is very interesting science actually done on that. And there is very interesting um, missions and ground telescopes actually designed to handle that. But, James Webb is not designed for this for this signal. James Webb is designed for something in between, optimized from the point uh, from the point eight all the way to twenty five micro. So this is basically the sweet spot for James Webb. But I'm gonna explain this in a little bit, slight details, not in in, in deep details, um, but just to give you an idea what is the challenges actually to, to, to do images at this range. Of course, all of us, we enjoy the how cheap actually the cameras these days. Every cell phone has a camera, you have a security cameras and uh, you have all those. And basically those actually work on the visible uh, spectrum. And uh, because of the volume, and there is so many researches on that um, field. So basically like cost for these cameras become, like you can buy a, a, a CMOS uh, CCD cameras, okay, like CMOS cameras, not CCD, for very, for like a, less than a dollar, right, these days, literally. Um, but for infrared is completely different, okay? And I'm gonna basically explain why why it is why that actually maybe in a few slides ahead. Okay. And uh, part of the, the 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 cost structures for cameras for infrared, of course, the sensor itself. Okay. And part of the optics, the optics for infrared is cannot use glass because glass actually block infrared. And there is a, far, a very exotic materials need to be used to basically to, to, to build um, lenses in the infrared domain. 
And if basically if you go to like uh, military shows or like uh, air shows or something like that, you can see some of the airplanes actually have this um, very weird um, colored uh, openings. Okay, those actually an infrared uh, thermal or like a thermal guide stuff, and it has a very weird color because you can use use glass to basically uh, as a lens for the, when you're using infrared. So. So basically, if you want to build an, an infrared camera, it, the cost structure is not going to be from the silicon. It's going to be that most of the, the cost actually will come from the optics as well. Um, but there is another challenge also like in the cost structures because you know in, in in semiconductors, the cost actually depends on the size of your silicon, right? So when you're talking about visible, we talk about like. 0.4 micron to uh, 0.8 micron. This is the range we are talking about for visible. So I can basically make a pixel. Of course, like your pixel size has to be bigger than the wavelength, correct? It makes sense. Okay, so you have, you have to be basically more than one micron. Today, for example, actually your iPhone, like iPhone 14 or something like that, okay? What is the pixel size? The pixel size around uh, uh, one point something, uh, one point at least than a two micron, right? And uh, sometimes actually, like some some competitions to iPhones, actually they have fifty meg cameras or something like that because they can make the pixels much much smaller. They want to go very small so they can basically, a marketing, they can sell a fifty meg camera, correct? But. Um, because, so what, how can they achieve that? Because the pixel size is small. It has to be bigger than the wave, uh, wavelengths you're trying to capture. When you come to uh, infrared, for example, actually in the two microns domain, your sensor has to be much, much bigger than two micron. And typically it is in the 15 microns, okay? Dimensions like 15 by 15 micron. When you basically want to have a good resolution camera, all of a sudden, actually, your sensor become huge, become very big, right? Like if you want to do a thousand by thousand pixel sensor and your pixel size is 20 microns, all of a sudden, actually, your, your, um, your sen like sensor itself actually become two centimeter by two centimeter. Definitely, you cannot put this in a, a cell phone, for example. But... Of course, like a very expensive multi-billion dollar um, missions or a telescope, of course, like you can afford to, to, uh, to, to buy that. But anyway, but in, in this, so let us basically now, we're not gonna talk about the sub-millimeters because it has its own challenges and that is beyond the talk. James Webb, as I mentioned, it is designed to observe in the range 0.8, um, it has also like a, some little bit of uh, a red. Um, it will basically from the um, near infrared all the way to 25 micro. That is basically. But even in this domain, there is a lot of challenges. And maybe I can highlight few of those, okay? Not in, in details. Okay, um, so if you look into uh, NASA uh, missions, okay, you're gonna basically find so many missions. Of course, like this is not the whole list. There's 
much more than that. But just to give you an idea, that is for each spectrum or each uh, frequency range, you need to design uh, missions designed for this frequency range or like this um, 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 bandwidth, right? So um, for like, of course, like for gamma rays, actually there is some missions for Fermi and uh, the famous one for X-ray is called Chandra. And of course, like Hubble's and James Webb in uh, Hubble, of course, has optically like a visible uh, domain, but also have infrared, like the, uh, the update Hubble. Um, I think actually like in the 2000, uh, uh, 2000, uh, I forgot, 2004, 2003, uh, to basically have more capability in the infrared. And of course, like today, actually we have the web telescopes, which is only focused on the infrared. Uh, Submillimeters, basically, there's, there's so many grounds based and there, uh, and um, there is um, this very famous one is called Sophia, and this is, but this is beyond the, um, um, the discussion for today. Okay, so why we like uh, infrared? There's two reasons, and I'll explain one of them now, and one I'm gonna basically discuss it uh, later when we discuss one of the images from uh, James Webb Space Telescope. Um, so pretty much, actually, let us talk about like I, 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 there is something what is we refer to uh, black body radiations. I'm sure that is everyone in the call hear about this term, which is basically any anything, okay, radiates based on his, it, it based on the temperature, interesting temperatures, without forcing uh, um, energy into a, a, a subject, it basically starts to radiate. And it has a radiation spectrum, or a shape, right? So for example, our sun, most of the radiations of the sun, the Earth's sun, okay, is in the visible light. Like if it has like black body radiations at 5,000 degree, okay, Kelvin. And when you look into this spectrum, you see it is, it, it basically big at the visible light. That's why most of the light around us actually in, 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 in this range. And that's why our eyes is, sensitive to, to this visible light. But our, our sun is not a common in our galaxy way, by the way. Our sun is rare, which means that as most of the stars you go at night and you see it, it is in the reddish side, like it is in the red. And there is so many of those type of the stars and basically they move from the visible, okay, and the spectrum keeps shifting into the red or infrared. Like, I think actually if we see an alien, this is, I guess actually, if we see an aliens coming from uh, one of these stars, his eye has to be much bigger than our eyes. Okay, why? Because those stars, the spectrums coming from those stars are in the infrared more than the uh, visible. Maybe they'll have some little bit of, in the visible domain, but most of the spectrum will come from the infrared. So the near, that is basically in the near infrared. Near infrared is very good actually to, uh, for uh, red stars, 
red giants and dusts. Okay. Uh, and basically, the, sorry, the dust actually cannot basically is, is almost like trans transparent in this in, uh, in this frequency, right? Uh, mid infrared is uh, typically planets, okay, comets, asteroids. Those actually emit in the mid infrared. So if you want to basically watch far, far, far away planets, okay, of course, like it doesn't have the glow of a star, but it's it has its own glow. And its own glow come from the mainly the spectrum of it come mainly from the mid infrared. Protoplanetary um, uh, uh, disks, but before the uh, planets actually get formed, there is some uh, disks around it, around them, around the stars. And whereas the planets actually get evolved, is basically also like this rings actually. It is um, emit in the mid infrared, but for very cold uh, stuff um, like cold dusts between gal uh, between galaxies and uh, in between like far away from the centers, like cold dusts actually just emit in the far infrared. So that is basically why, if you want to see this stuff in little details, you need to watch it. Okay, in infrared. That's why it is basically is very important. Okay. Let us basically see, like, let us basically face what is the challenges actually in infrared um, imaging from Earth. Um, this actually is um, um, the like atmospheric absorptions, basically, like. Uh, it's a curve. It shows that is okay. If you are in this spectrums, how much we are protected by the our atmosphere. And um, you can see very clear. Actually, if you are in the ultraviolet, we almost like blocked. That's very good. Correct. Like. Sometimes actually some little bit it, it is blocked by the ozones and when the ozones. Um, <clears throat> um, deplete a little bit, like quite a bit of ultraviolet sleep in, and it's very harmful. So somehow, Earth is protected from ultraviolet. Of course, we are not protected from visible, right? Like most of the visible lights actually go through the atmosphere. That's why we, our, we enjoy going out, okay, and uh, see very good colors, vibrant colors in parks and everything. So in here, actually, like the um, we call it the solar window, means that is okay. This is a window of a spectrum. It is the atmosphere actually does not block it. They're not protected from that. Then all of the sudden, actually, in here between the one to after that, is, we call it actually is um, 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 it's blocked for infrared. It is, you can see like, it is, it is actually the shape is more complex than that, but this is actually a, a, a good diagram to give you the idea. Then between basically the 10, uh, the one and 10 microns, okay, it microns actually is also blocked by the atmosphere. Like the atmosphere actually absorb quite a bit of, um, uh, of this. And interesting enough, actually, uh, most of this absorptions happen because of the CO2 content in the atmosphere. Means that is okay. So 
like the existence of, of the CO2 was one of the reasons actually we enjoy the heat. And why that? Because actually light come in, okay, some energy come in and basically when it heats the earth and when it want to escape, uh, it get, get basically reabsorbed again, this heat get absorbed again in the CO2 uh, available in the atmosphere. Um, that's why actually, and very interesting balance, the, the, the ratio of the CO2 in the atmosphere is very important. Okay, and the reason, and basically, this is what to keep us actually the Earth's work. If the, if the, atom, uh, of the CO2 decrease, pretty much actually the Earth will freeze. And if it increases, actually, will, 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 like, this is what we talked about it actually, like now the CO2 actually keep increasing on the atmosphere and the Earth actually is heating up. But there is another window, okay, around the 10 micron. And this is very interesting because this is actually, if there is, if there is no window, this is actually atmosphere, the, this spectrum can escape the surface. This is actually, it's very important uh, uh, window because this is the window will allow the heat slightly escape from Earth, okay? So that has to be a balance between the energy coming to Earth and the energy coming from Earth. And this balance will keep us our temperatures we have today. And if there is any imbalance in that, something like either we freeze or what basically we, be, we will have thermal runaway. Then after that, actually it's still blocked. So if you wanna do imaging in the 15 to 20 micron, for example, there is no way, like it's very, it's almost, like it's, it's very hard to make it on Earth, from Earth. So most of the infrareds at this range's missions, it has to be done like um, uh, um, some, like either like it is, like this is Sophia, for example, like this aeroplanes, which it has thermal um, cameras, that basically it is in the, um, uh, it has to fly, it has basically go way, way higher, as higher as possible, correct? And uh, most of the useful missions in the infrared been done in space, like uh, the one which basically very famous before James Webb, um, it just basically get decommissions only like a year, uh, I think it's two years ago, is uh, um, Spitzer's Space Telescope. Spitzer actually has a very long window of observations um, up to all the way to 80 microns. But Spitzer's suffer from something else, which is the, 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 the telescope itself is so small, okay? It has very good infrared capabilities, but the resolving power of the telescope, it is it's not there. So definitely James Webb solved this problem because we get the sensitivity, we get the, um, um, what's called the, the, you know, the resolve, like in, we enhance quite a bit actually the resolving power, correct, of the telescope using James Webb. But of course, like we cannot do the long, long range, like a long, this very, very long um, uh, 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 electromagnetics, actually, or like very long uh, waves, actually, as, as Spitzer. So it is every, every mission has to, they have to compromise what they want about is the, the main sub object of the missions, and they design the equipment based on that. Okay, so. 
Now, that is actually, this is very, it tells us actually it's very interesting things actually. Most of the infrared is blocked. There is a window, like you can basically do a telescope on Earth much better than in space because you can, of course, like Earth, we can build a bit of much bigger telescopes, but there will be a bigger problems actually in the 10 microns. Okay. That is very interesting, okay. Uh, diagram, which is, we call it the atmospheric background. Okay, what is that? So I just basically told you that is okay, that in the 10 micron, we, there is a window similar to the window, to the sky, similar to the window uh, we have uh, for the visible. So why not actually, if you wanna do uh, around the 10 micron, I can go in, in, in Earth and basically build the telescopes much bigger than any telescopes we can, we can put it in space, definitely. But in this window, there is another, another bigger problem actually for infrared, um, uh, for the infrared, um, which is that. Okay, so there is all, most of the, at our, uh, in the temperature range, we are, okay, like around like um, zero, to, like uh, between zero to 25 or like uh, zero to um, centigrade. The thermal radiations as a black body can focus around this number, around the 10 micron space. So pretty much actually is, it is everything glow, every subject, every object around us, the earth, the atmosphere, the, it glow around, of course, like it depends on the temperatures, but the mean, the idea actually, Everything is glowing at this at this at this um, uh, at this wavelength around the, the thin micro range, right? So, in here actually, this is very interesting because this is rarely scattered. What's that? Um, when you look into the during during days, the sky looks blue, and why why is the sky looks blue? Because actually because of this rarely scattered. So during days. You cannot, you cannot do any observations. You cannot look into the sky and basically resolving any, any stars. Although we know that there is a stars, but you cannot resolve it because of this really scattered. Like, you know, light come in and basically scattered in a, in a specific ways and uh, only blue basically um, dominating. And basically we, that's why the, the, the sky looks blue. But this actually, this effect goes dramatically down once you go to this, the micro, uh, beyond one micron. So beyond one micron, we don't have this scatter. So everything looks okay from this point of view. But we're gonna get a lot of this thermal radiations at this, once you pass this one micron, okay? So for light, like for the visible light during the day, we get this noise, it's called the Raleigh, Raleigh scatter, okay? But during nights, I can go to, I can take my telescope and I can go to my backyard and observe. Unfortunately, the thermal can, can, it doesn't go away. It's always there. So you always have a huge background noise coming from this thermal radiations, okay? It's coming from the telescope itself. If we have a telescope on Earth itself, it's glowing. It's like as hot, Okay, and it basically radiates uh, in this range. So that is basically this, uh, like 
that is based on the atmosphere, right? Like our atmosphere is glowing, the earth is glowing, the trees is glowing, everything is glowing at this 10 micron. And, um, and um, to resolve anything, it's almost equivalent. You wanna um, do observations using the telescope during the day. It's something similar. There is another actually effect, but actually I didn't point here is also like all the dust around in, in, in between between our sun and other suns, like you know, and um, in the, our Milky Way itself, it is glowing also like in the in this range. So it's very challenging uh, making uh, imaging for uh, astronomy imaging at this mainly. If you want to do it from Earth, it is almost like very difficult, okay? And if you want to do it even from space, actually you're gonna basically face different problems, okay? But at least we can, uh, from space, we can, at least we can solve this problem of um, thermal radiation. Okay, so for the infrared detectors, um, we cannot, unfortunately, because the infrared is much lower energy than the visible light. Invisible light, somehow we excel how we detect visible lights these days, right? Like I mentioned, like this has become, we become very, very smart actually in how we, we build cameras for cell phones, for, um, because there is so many, of course, like there's so many research in it and people fund that and it become very important for us actually to, uh, it become uh, uh, visible sensors that become um, house, household, like household commodities, correct? Like it's available everywhere. Infrared is like with the sensitivity is still Try, people trying to figure out actually what needs to be done, okay? We cannot, unfortunately, we cannot use silicon section for infrared. So you're gonna see like most of the sensors available, it's very exotic materials, okay? And those exotic materials, even actually this one material cannot basically fit all the spectrums we are trying to achieve here between, remember, between the like the uh, point eight or like point seven to twenty five, even that I cannot find one material to to basically have a good sensitivity across all these spectrums. So typically, they have to basically use multiple sensors for different for different uh, for different regions in 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 that. For example, actually. Um, uh, James Webb, most of the sensors within the range of uh, 0.8 to 5 microns, they are using the mercury, candium, tellurides, uh, uh, okay, which is this one. And all the sensors actually in James Webb, it is using this, uh, this material. And when they want to go much, much higher wavelengths, like for example, they have an instrument called MIRI, mid-infrared um, uh, instrument. Um, they use different material for the sensors, or silicon arsenic. What is good about this material, like for the between the 0.8 to 5 microns, 
which is uh, Mercury Candium uh, to, to the right one, is this material is, um, uh, uh, you can basically tune this material somehow, okay? And you can, for specific sensitivity, like you can get more sensitivity if you wanna focus in specific wavelengths, you can basically play with that uh, combinations, okay, molecular combinations, like how the crystal is, is done. And you can have a, a very, uh, inter, like more sense, you can get more sensitivity. And we're gonna see how they did it actually for Jim's um, um Remember the thermal, the thermal, like the, the, the thermal background noise, correct? Which is the sensor itself, actually, it is, it's a material, it's a, basically we're radiated that. So most of these sensors, especially at the mid-infrared, if you wanna do mid-infrared, it has to be cooled down. So it has to be cooled down around to, to four Kelvin, which is using uh, liquid helium. So like Spitzers, all the, all the earlier missions using um, uh, mid-infrared, they basically cool it down to, that, to this degree. They have to cool it down to this degree. James Webb also does have a very, very interesting, innovative, if I have time, we can discuss it, but most probably I should not. Um, um, they basically cool the actual sensors today, I think actually to um, six degrees. The whole housing for the sensors, with the sensor, everything, they cool it down to six degrees as, as per today. Uh, but for the mid, for the near infrared, they don't have to go this way. They basically, they don't have to, Force cooling is basically natural, natural uh, cooling um, from uh, and this in, in, uh, like they do basically passive cooling and they can they were able to achieve to uh, I think actually forty degree. But the message here, if you want to do that mid infrared, you have to cool the sensors into this very 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 cool um, and. Most of the, most of the missions that have this, they have to basically discuss how we're gonna call this, um, and, and you have to basically go and convince the science team. Basically, there's you have and, and the engineering team has to go and say, okay, uh, we have a solution, so they have to prove that it's okay, they can achieve that. Okay, so remember, um, we cannot use CCD. Okay, so like in in your cell phone, use. This cheap cameras, okay, they're using what's called CMOS sensors, right? But the high-end uh, cameras, little bit high-end cameras, okay, of course, like we don't use it for digital photography. Um, I think actually because it's expensive, but you can see like in some uh, very, uh, there's some cheap, um, what's called the cheap um, uh, astronomy cameras for a thousand dollar or two thousand dollars using CCDs. But CCDs actually means that is okay. Um, when you have a charge, you can move the charge within the sensor itself. Okay, think about it. Actually, you have an image on on your CCD, but somehow magically I can shift these informations. Okay, in the CCD, we can. Unfortunately, we cannot do that for uh, for uh, for because. In, in these missions, it is the electrons are very precious. Okay, it's very, 
uh, I, 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 maybe actually in, in slide or two, I can explain this more. Um, so we need to maintain, we cannot afford losing any electrons in when we do in, uh, like at this sensitivity infrared imaging, right? So you're gonna basically have this layer of uh, material, which basically we, I just mentioned some of those materials, okay? Like the mercury, cadmium, uh, one. And what will happen here, like, for each pixels, I will have a sensor. Like, it, I, like I have almost, I convert whatever elect electrons in this area by it is by its own uh, 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 readouts, uh, uh, like a, 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 its own, every pixel, it can have its own amplifiers almost. Okay, you can think about it like this. This is how complex actually this stuff is, right? And after basically you convert these electrons into, into currents, or like you just basically withdraw these currents, what will happen is you can basically go and read it out. Like now actually I can go and amplify it and I have much better signals and I can, um, I can read it out, okay? So that is basically also like infrared at this sensitivity camera uh, sensors are, are not, the typical sensors actually we're using in somewhere else, even not, not a CCD. Okay, so what is, um, okay, like for, for example, I just, this is an example, okay, on how, 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 how basically like we play actually with, when we play with the, the, the different chemical compositions of these crystals, I can tune to different wavelengths. But remember the. Um, uh, let me let me just uh, like before actually I uh, mentioned that maybe I can basically give you an example, right? Um, when you go outside, okay, and look, what is the limit of your eyes to look for uh, stars, right? So when you look at, when you look into star, what is the minimum photons? it will come from this star, okay? So I can, my eyes can detect as an example. It come out actually, it's almost around 5,000, uh, like uh, your, our, our eyes can detect as little as uh, 5,000 photons a second. Okay, this is the ratio, okay? Uh, it is slightly less because actually our eye, how the eye actually treats the images, it treats it differently. So basically maybe less, correct? And there's something called, what we call it quantum, uh, uh, quantum um, efficiency, which basically, if you know the number of photons coming from a subject, okay, I can convert it into electrons. And engineers these days, we love electrons, correct? We know how to move it, we know how to trap it, we know how to do anything with it, correct? Like we, we can basically push it back and forth as, as fast as 10 gigahertz and stuff like that. We are very good actually treat, uh, playing with electrons. So, so we need to get a material that is okay, very efficient in converting these photons into electrons. And that is exactly, <clears throat> and this material is okay, because we can, as I mentioned, that is okay, we cannot get this to do this in silicon. So we have to do this exotic materials. 
is almost like there's a conversion ratio. It is one photon, it converted to 100, 100 electrons, something like. Um, you multiply the number, it is, uh, it's almost like a photomultiplier, but this is actually um, electrical, uh, like photons to electrons ratios for these materials. And I, I don't exactly go into the details of this because it is beyond the scope of this talk, but that is basically how it is. It is, you get a photons coming in and magically you multiply these photons by 100, you can generate 100 electrons. And basically, remember, you can read this uh, current um, uh, outside that sensor. Okay, but this is our eyes around 5,000 um, photons, our eye can detect 5,000 photons per second. Okay, it's very little actually, this is very, 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 by, trust me, it's very, um, it's very sensitive, our eyes is very sensitive. But for, it, for this very dark, very far away uh, subjects we're trying to achieve here, okay, well, almost actually the ratios actually it is uh, the number of photons coming from these subjects is much much less than that. Uh, I think actually it is in the range. I don't could mean this number just uh, like I, that's what I in the range because actually typically um, you, you get the power the energy coming from the subject. You can you know what it is based on like you remember actually in um, each star has what's called the EP number which is tell you how much intensity and basically can convert this into uh, energy per, per, um, <clears throat> per area per second. <clears throat> um, and knowing what is, what is your sensor size is, you can, you can basically know exactly how many photons will come from, from this subject. Um, so it turned out actually some of the, um, yeah, some of this very dim stuff actually it is also hundreds of my uh, hundreds of photons but not per second per hour so to detect anything actually in this like you have to have very 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 long exposures to basically collect as as many um as many uh, photons as you can Okay, so that is basically James Webb's uh, uh, near cam. Okay, this is one of the cameras. Okay, um, James Webb has two cameras and two spectrum uh, 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 spectrum analyzers. So, one of the cameras, which we call it the near cam, which be, of course from the name, uh, from the name, it is near infrared camera, which is designed between the 0.8 to five micron. But even this spectrum has a challenge by itself. You look at this, you can see there's two, two type of sensors in this camera. One for pixels between two to five micron, okay, or two and a half to five microns. We use this single pixel, a single, a sensor, a single sensor, big sensor like that. And for the shorter one or shorter channels, we use four smaller, more resolution camera, uh, cameras. And why is that? Because in here, like in here, this is actually designed for five microns. So the pixel size actually has to be much, much bigger than the one here, right? 
like the pixel size to have the same resolutions, for example, actually 2000 by 2000 uh, resolutions. This is actually it's 2000 by 2000 pixels uh, resolutions. And I can basically in the same area, I can both fit four sensors. Each one of those actually it's, it's 2000 by 2000. Why is that? Because this is actually like my um, wave lens is much bigger. I have to get <clears throat> I have to get uh, much bigger pixels to basically get this. So in this camera, there's one camera, but I have you can think about it two planes. One have four four cameras beside each other for the range between 0.8 micron to two and a half micron. And much bigger, uh, another channel for bigger, bigger width lens than that, in the range of two, two and a half to, to five, I can basically use uh, uh, different, different, uh, different camera. Okay. And remember, they have to tune the materials in those sensors differently to basically be sensitive in this bandwidth. Okay. They are talking about. How this camera in Jim's window looks like? This is um, just um, um, not going to go through the uh, exact detail, but it's very, very simple enough to basically go through the optical pass. It just basically the light will come from here, okay, and get reflected and um, another reflections, kilometers basically just a, a, a lenses, and this a splitter. Um, this is splitter will split. You remember. I have two sensors, we have the one big one and there is another channel has four smaller sensors. So I do basically have a beam splitter to, for um, um, short waves, when we call short, uh, short waves, the 0.8 to 2.5 and the long, which it has a sensor here for the long, which is it's one big sensors by itself and each one of those has what's called like a wheel in front of it, correct? And this is double double wheels. It has different, I can mix and match between people and a filters, okay? And I'm gonna, we're gonna see when we see some of the James Webb space telescope images, we're gonna basically see how those actually get in, in, uh, in, 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 in use. Um, I think actually this is just a, um, it's um, not a, it's stable, but just to give you an, uh, an idea. Um, so this is this is some of the uh, like like remember we have this we have those this beam splitter, and we have the short and we have the long, and there is uh, this is the bubble wheel and this is the filter wheels and we have too too many filters for each channel. Right. Um, for different, um, uh, different, um, like each each filters. It's just a filters, correct? It basically say, okay, I wanna basically, for example, here, um, I wanna be in the range of um, fourteen microns, correct? Okay. But this is the center of the uh, uh, center, and this is when you see, uh, for example, M. This is medium, and it is W mean white. White filter. You can look into those actually the characteristics, the, the, uh, the characteristics for each filters. It is very well um, documented online. Okay, so 
when I uh, when I took an image, what I'm gonna have to do, I have to basically the same same subject. I'm gonna see it in two cameras simultaneously, and each camera I can basically go and change the filters. Uh, Ken, sorry, actually, what, uh, uh, how much time I have? Uh, I, um, I, um, it's, it's two o'clock already, so uh, do I have? Oh, you, you, actually, I, I enjoy your talk. Okay, so uh, the time. So, yeah, tell me, tell me about the time. So uh, uh, the, the default is two thirty. Uh, okay. But if you, are, if you and the audience are willing, uh, I personally have no problem, and we do have time in the room here. Uh, so, uh, but the default is two thirty. But it go beyond a little bit. That should be okay. No, actually, I will, I will, I will, I will try to uh, talk. Uh, I will try to finish it in like uh, maybe in 10, 15 minutes, and we can have like ten question, minutes. Yeah, for, for and questions. especially your, uh, you know, uh, the previous speaker uh, extend, you know, a little bit. So That's okay. yeah, okay. Go ahead. Um, in here, actually, is okay. This is. Uh, the field of view for the whole entire James Webb. What does this mean? Like, I just want to make sure because um, you're going to go and read about James Webb and you're going to see this all the time. Okay. But I want to make sure that is okay. you guys actually understand what, I, what this means. It means that is okay. All this is the James Webb optical plane. Uh, basically, like all the light from all the telescope structures will focus into this, uh, this plane. And you can see, oh, where is my sensors in, uh, in, in, in James Webb? James Webb, we have um, uh, four main instruments. The near cam, which is the subject for today's talk, okay? And we have what's called the near spec, which is on the side, okay? And the MIRI, which is a mid-infrared, and near, uh, near uh, another spectrum, uh, uh, spectrometers, okay? Um, not gonna discuss today, but we'll just uh, highlight some of the, um, maybe highlight one or two items in, in here. And something, another camera, but we don't use it for, we can use it for science, but mainly it is used for guidance, like fine guidance systems, okay? So this is basically all the light coming from the telescopes will basically focus into this plane. So this means that is I can do simultaneous um, acquisition different different um, different instruments can operate in parallel. But let's go back to the near cam. The near cam actually because it is a, the most important. It is in the middle, and it has um, ten sensors. Correct? Why? Because the because the near cam was the most important camera in uh, James Webb when they design zoom too. So they have to do redundancy. So we have two cameras, one, they call it A and B. So this is A and this is B, okay? But remember actually the same field of view for this camera can be seen by two different sensors, correct? The 2.5 microns and the uh, 0.8 to 2.5, like the ones are long and short. So the field of view, they are on top of each others, like the same subject, Get split it, okay, into these two sensors. So they are on top of each other here, right? But different um, different sensors, uh, different instruments have different uh, views. Basically, they don't stacking, like not everything can see that, right? Because 
remember this is very expensive photons. We are waiting for hours to basically collect these photons. We cannot afford basically to distribute it more than that. So the only dis distributions happen happen in, in, in the near camp. But part of the sky, maybe it is exposed to the other uh, instruments. That's fine. Okay. So this is actually how the uh, near cam actually um, was looked look like. You can from the top. This is one camera in the diamond. Actually, another camera, and you can see the wheels. This is the double wheels uh, we just uh, talked about, and this is actually the housing for the uh, for the cameras. Uh, remember, it is not actively cooled. Like it is, it is passively cooled, right? It is and how we maintain the temperature of James Webb, we basically try to protect the whole entire telescope by a shield, um, big shield, like a five-layer shield, sun shield. And this, believe it or not, one side of the shield, it is three, at the 300 uh, Kelvin, okay, very, very hot. I'm not hot, basically like it is uh, 300 Kelvin, Compared to the other side of the telescope, which basically have all the optics, it is they kept it at 40k. In matter of fact, if you if you go to the the space telescope uh, institute, which manage James James Webb and manage Hubble, they have a very nice actually online diagram on basically what is the temperature for each for each uh, side of the telescopes. Very interesting, and this is basically pretty much. So remember that is this temperature is good enough for mid infrared, but for the uh, sorry for the short uh, for the near field infrared, but for the long uh, uh, mid um, as a for the MIRI, which is ex inside the I, uh, I, uh, the integrate uh, like the instrument module, they have to cool it down to. As I mentioned, it is supposed to be equal to four, but they were able to achieve to six. Six was good enough for the sensitivity try to achieve. So I think actually that's um, that's uh, that's it. And it's very very complex mechanism to achieve that by the helium itself. It is in the spacecraft bus, which basically is this container have everything, all the instruments, computers, everything, and they have a line, a cold line coming from across the sun shield to basically cool down the MIRI sensor to six degree. Okay. Here we go. Okay. Um, this is basically um, to start basically talking about the first images from James Webb. I just basically when I compare it to Hubble, correct? One, one of the most important uh, images coming from Hubble, this, what, this, uh, this uh, what's called uh, Hubble ultra, uh, ultra deep field uh, images. When we talk about deep field, means that is okay, it is very, very, very long exposure, okay? In matter of fact, these images, uh, I think actually the one on the left, it talks them 800, you know, Hubble, Hubble rotate has uh, orbit around around Earth. So it suffer from um, this issue because it has to go and basically at one point of time, actually 
like it, it rotate around else every one and a half hour. So every one and a half hour, it gives a rotations around else. But it's very important that is okay. They have to shut down, like they have to close the opening of the telescope so they don't damage if the brightness come uh, so too high or like. So they have only one hour of exposure. They basically have to shut down the, then they have to do it again, or like maybe less than that. I like it depends on the programs and what they are trying to do. But this is its idea. If you do the uh, uh, deep, uh, deep field, actually, it's similar to uh, um, uh, astrophotography in Earth, correct? Like we, for example, um, if you want to do very nice astrophotography, what you do, you just do very long exposures. Sometimes, actually, people. Like I have a friends actually have they do uh, like multi days exposure. For Hubble to take this image, it takes them eight hundred cycles. It takes almost like twenty days. Okay, imagine twenty days looking into one. You have to look. You cannot basically. Um, you have to look into one spot and you keep looking into it for twenty one days. That's why it is not common to do uh, Hubble. Uh, ultra uh, ultra uh, deep field again because you take the telescope and use it for 21 days for one for one for one image. Of course, this is not practical. There is thousands of people trying to use Hubble, and of course, like this is will happen again for James Webb. There's thousands of people who want to use um, submitting proposal to James Webb to achieve, to to get a time on the the, uh, the telescope. So that's basically telling you that is okay. What is like, if you really need to do ultra deep fields, okay, to get this very, very sensitive subjects. Remember, I told you that is okay. Some of these subjects actually can get a, a few photons every hour, okay? That is basically how uh, ridiculous uh, um, this, so you have, to, you have no choice. You have to collect information from different part of the subject, so we can get the result, and you have to have the like um, capability to resolve something out uh, from this subject. So, how you solve this? Either like having a bare telescope, it has to be also like in space. That's why James Webb actually is unreplaceable. There's nothing actually can replace James Webb today in from ground or from. Uh, anything else? Basically, this is our biggest telescope now yet in space. So that image actually uh, it is um, uh, it is for coming from Hubble. Okay, so it took twenty one days, and basically what's revolutionized it basically, and I explain why it was revolutionized. This actually because there is another exactly the same uh, image was taken by James uh, Webb Space Telescope. By the way, actually, how you know? Because again, I see too many picture, uh, too many uh, images from James Webb and from Hubble for the same subject. But how can you differentiate it? Which, 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 which? It's very easy. I can tell you, like uh, 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 my, you look into what is called the BSF, okay, uh, our big uh, split function, pixel split functions, okay, point split function. Sorry, point split functions. So uh, you can see here, actually, in Hubble, uh, it is a cross. Like it is, it, mainly it has four. Uh, it has four perpendicular um, 
like you know that spreading actually at for a point it has this, it's a very distinctive shape correct so whenever you see this you know exactly it is uh, it is coming from James Webb uh, sorry coming from Hubble for James Webb is the this is completely is slightly different and I explain maybe if I have time I can explain to you why why they are different from uh, from okay. So this image, as I mentioned, when Hubble took it, was a revolution. Was a revolution, and why it is? Uh, because actually, this is our first time to go and look at the first galaxies, come close to watch the first galaxies. Why is that? It is because actually, um, far away galaxies, okay, are very uh, like far uh, far away galaxies actually are very close to um, uh, 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 it is basically redshifted when basically when saying it is redshifted it is also indicating that it is also like an old an old galaxies right but actually what what we mean by old I mean if you look into actually today actually you go outside and see something okay that is actually has no uh, uh, redshift um, I hope actually everyone in the call actually knows what is redshift, so I don't have to explain what is redshift. I mean, shift basically the spectrum of the subject is shifted to become longer, like you stretch the spectrum a little bit and become basically, um, it moved to the red side. Okay, so today actually, um, um, if you look at the near, nearby galaxies, actually there are no, uh, no redshifts or like slightly shifted, okay. But because it is very close, and but far away galaxies actually way redshifted to a degree that is okay. The spectrum of it, when of course like it is in in, in the in the, in the visual uh, invisible domain, but actually it is shifted way too much to a degree it become the whole galaxies actually in the infrared. You cannot basically have any ground telescope to see it. It is completely disappeared. Um. And that's very interesting also, like this is actually the epoch of uh, ionizations, because remember, after the, um, when the, 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 when the, like the universe started with a big bang or like, or like inflations, whatever it is, and you have at, at, after, after something like around 380,000 uh, years, it start to cool down. Okay, and it become completely dark. And what's happening here? It is basically we have only hydrogen and helium, but there is no light, zero light. It's basically the light, light is completely it, uh, it's gone. Why? Remember, actually, the light come from stars like our sun, and our sun is basically five thousand degree. But if you cool down our sun into three thousand, two thousand. All of the sudden, actually, it's basically it doesn't emit invisible light anymore. It becomes something else. It emit in infrared. So here, actually, no, there is no light. Then basically, stars start to show up, okay, um, in the universe, and it causes a lot of reionizations to this sea of hydrogens and heliums in the universe. Okay. So when that happened, 
the images we get it from this, uh, from those very early galaxies, what, how, how are you gonna see it? You're gonna see part of the spectrum is get absorbed because of this hydrogen, okay? And this is actually, as you call it, a uh, lemon break, right? How this actually looks like. For example, actually, this is an early uh, galaxy, okay? Um, and um, it's not that early. I'll explain why it's not that early. This, this, uh, this is actually a Z3. You can see this is, of course, like this, this is from Hubble. Like all these images are from Hubble. You can see basically you can have um, an, uh, a filters, different filters can be used. And if the filter, I take, I take an image, you can see this galaxy being seen in all the filters in the visible light and all the way to the infrared. Like four, this is actually 400 micron, uh, 400 nano. And so basically this is a bluish filter, then more bluish, then okay, you come here up to the red and you see like still the galaxy, it is, it, it appear like in, in your image, take an image, um, but when it is red shifted, you can see some of the same, like the, the, this actually like doesn't, like there is no image, is, we cannot see anything in the, in the, uh, we cannot see anything on your detectors until you achieve specific wavelengths, it starts to basically show up. This is actually, we call, like you can hear this term actually a lot in the science talks, actually it's called lemon break, which is the universal field of hydrogen. <clears throat> and this galaxy is emitting spectrum supposed to be in also like in the ultraviolets and and, but we don't see this, why? Because it is gets absorbed by this, uh, by this intergalactic medium, right? So what happened actually if high redshifter suns, it basically goes all the way, it basically, it is not visible at all. It's not even visible, it starts to basically not become visible in the infrared, like here up to, it shows only in the 1.6 micron in uh, in uh, in uh, in Hubble. Hubble does not have any capability beyond that, beyond the one point like the two microns. Okay. So if you want to basically see like an older galaxies, there is no way you can use Hubble. You have to use something like James Webb, right? That is the only way you can you can you can you can you can achieve that. You need the sensitivity, which it was not there from older telescopes and uh, and the resolving power. So you can see more pixels and instead of actually seeing few, two, three pixels, like we need to see more than that for, for each galaxy, right? So that's why actually it is, see like Hubble can stop, as this is the limit of Hubble, right? That's the two micron. But if a galaxy actually keep moving in the red, area cannot be basically be observed by hub and the infrared area will not be able to be observed by hub. James Webb basically will excel in those type of galaxies. Okay. This is actually is uh, first image, okay, announced in July 7th, correct? Like um, few uh, a couple of months ago. Um, and you can see, 
It's the same image being taken by Hubble 10 years ago, okay? But the difference is it is, um, instead of actually taking weeks to complete, this is take only 12 hours. This is amazing, right? Like 12 hours because I have much bigger telescope, okay? And more sensitive um, uh, sensors and setup, okay? I can basically achieve, I can get this the same image actually for um, less than, much less than. Um, and you can see, remember the filters actually, we talked about in the infrared, you know, because actually you're gonna see it all the times actually in NASA, like when, I'm sure that is every one of you guys actually will go and search Jim's web uh, um, images in NASA websites. And in NASA websites actually, they will tell you okay, what filter been used and stuff like that. Now actually you have this, background, you can know that is okay, this is a near cam uh, we, uh, filters on in front of the, uh, of, in front of my, uh, the sensor in near cam. And so how we color this is basically, there's no notation. Actually, if you go to, uh, you can basically, by the way, you can go and download all these images, okay, from, uh, uh, from the space telescope um, uh, institute. Um, all of them actually is a black and white, right? Of course, like because there is the notation of color does not exist in infrared. So how how basically how, how this is color colorful? It's is colorful because there is a smart guys. Okay, actually, actually there is also like some a lot of amateurs actually now doing try try to color these images. Do you see what is what um, what is the filter? Um, and basically map this filter into colors. And they can use, of course, uh, what's called um, like uh, Photoshop's and stuff like that. And you can basically get it get it layered, okay? And you can basically color these images. Like when you go to uh, uh, download these images, James Webb actually is similar to Hubble, okay? Like anyone can go and download these images, okay? It's not limited to. Uh, of course, there's a science team has what's called exclusivity uh, time, which means that is we can maintain the images if they want for up to one year. But typically, they're, they're like typically um, at least in, uh, here in US, they release it right away, correct? Like they don't, they don't, they basically, uh, they don't maintain it for long. They just basically hold. But trust me, actually, like the images you download, I tried actually to download. An example from yesterday, so for this presentation, but in Nautics, the files is so huge and uh, it's, it's used very weird format. I have to download like a, a decoder for it and basically I, I give up. But they have the thumbnail for it. Actually, all of all this image are black and white. Okay. And you have to basically take it and process it to make it uh, colors. Okay. And typically for each image, even actually, if you go to NASA websites and stuff, they will tell you what, what an instrument, near cam, what filters been used. And based on that, you can, um, um, you, can uh, you can, you know, what, what, how, how they capture this, this image. Um, this is basically another uh, images, it's the same, but I wanna basically show that is okay. We, in here actually in, on the left, it is using the MIRI, which is the mid-infrared. And on the, um, on the right, 
using the uh, near near cam, okay, the other the other sense uh, the other camera, and you can see like when you observe using um, the infrared uh, mid infrared, you, most of Russia you can see either like you see less or they see see more stuff. It depends also like on the filters actually being used in to uh, to access. Uh, and again, see, like, look at here, actually, like the point spread functions for this, uh, for Jim's web, it has, like, it is, it's not like, you remember, we talked about uh, the Hubble has this cross, but in, in Jim's web actually has six, six, six legs, okay? And you can see also like a small, um, if we have time, we can go through why, why is that, okay? Okay. But also, like you can do spectrum. Remember, in uh, in, uh, in in um, in James Webb, actually, um, there is two cameras and two uh, spectrum analyzers. So you can took some of these objects and you can do spectrum analyzers. And if you look back here, you see this strikes. This strikes. Um, they call it Einstein rings, right? Which basically, this is an object behind the whole scene. But it is due gravitational lensing. It basically shows in multiple in multiple locations, and they want to see: okay, are all these strikes is belong to the same subject? And they confirm it through spectrums. You can see they take this image and they take the spectrum here and they take the spectrum here, and they confirm that is these two at least strikes here are coming from the same the same subject. How we know that because the uh, spectrum for uh, both spectrums are exactly the same. Um, I have to speed up a little bit. And um, this is also like another image uh, for uh, James Webb, okay? And of course, the record before James Webb was allowed 11, uh, Z equal 11, or like the redshift of 11. James Webb basically was able to push it, okay? Now actually has a throw actually, of uh, uh, this, uh, discovering um, very early galaxies, and it is in the range of uh, 13.1 uh, And you can see um, um, it is very tiny, very, um, and it's amazing actually what they can do. Uh, this actually get released only just uh, two days ago. I just basically put it actually, it looks nice. And give an example actually for something interesting. Uh, this is near cam camera. Uh, this the color the the it's so beautiful when you see it online. Like maybe actually because I, I, I take a screenshot. Um, but when you, you go and this is only released yesterday or like two, two days ago. But this is a very interesting because actually the guy who basically this is amateurs actually start to basically use the raw images and color it themselves and basically get released. Um, you can, um, and somehow NASA adapts this and, um, um, you, you know, I, I, you can see it, like you can see different versions of this images now available, people actually play with the colors. Remember, there's no notation of color in infrared, you are free to do whatever you want. But typically, shorter, it depends on the filter, shorter wavelengths, we, we typically, we call it uh, blues and longer wavelengths, we color it. In the, red, uh, in the red side. That is basically also like another image, a very famous uh, uh, image, okay? 
But I just want to highlight this is actually being taken by near cam, like the one on the left, like this side. It is taken by near cam. The one in the uh, uh, sorry in the right, the left, not taken by near cam. The one in the right, taken by a different camera, which is the uh, Miri. And all of the sudden, you can see like double dots here. Like in here, actually, it doesn't exist at all. Why is that? Because this is basically this nebulous is has um, a star and a, 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 a two combining star. One star, it is very, of course, in the image, it's there, but the other star explode and created all this nebulous, right? But in here, we cannot see it because it is way in the infrared. Remember, actually, like it is basically when it starts this collapse, actually, it, it, it uh, um, um, I think actually um, um, it's, uh, when it collapse, you cannot see it here. And but using the infrared, uh, the mid infrared cameras, all of a sudden, actually, the star which is collapsed and co causing all this nebula to show up. Actually, start to also show up in the in the image. It's very interesting. Okay, um, some other images. Okay, uh, for near cam, uh, I'm gonna skip. Um, I'm gonna skip this, and maybe I'll come back uh, later. In near cam, also like the like uh, uh, recently, like two days ago, uh, um, uh, last week or something like that, they have announcement that is okay about uh, discovering the first um, uh, the, the first image. Of a brutal planet, or a planet actually, but you know this is a direct image, so it is in here. Okay, the star is. They cover the star. They have a mask. They can cover a star. And what is remaining coming out of this star will be the planet itself. It turns out actually this planet is massive. It's huge, and um, it is ten times bigger than Jupiter. But this is the limitations of James Webb. Okay, it only will be able to look um, and look at Jupiter's ten times like a giants basically planets. But if you want to look at um, planets similar to Earth, that is different mission. Maybe something in the futures. And I think actually they start to basically talking about um, much bigger telescopes. With much better sensitivity in the sensors to basically be acquired, to be able to capture um, uh, something similar to Earth's um, size, um, um, to be uh, captured similar to to that. So in here, actually, like we have the star, we basically block the star, and using different filters, you can see the, like the, the the planet actually has different shapes. Okay. And uh, this is the limit, actually, of uh, James Webb. And one of the problem, actually, with James Webb, actually, why we cannot basically see this uh, planets in higher resolutions is because of this point split functions. Remember, uh, in James Webb, actually, when they design it, they didn't design it to for cosmology, right? But they didn't design it when they plan that, 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 that this this mission. Or like this um, telescope. Even actually, there is no confirmed discoveries yet for planets outside our solar system. Uh, they start to talk about James Webb actually in in immediately after the launch Hubble. Hubble actually is so old, 
uh, Hubble is uh, 32 years old now. So uh, in 90s, so start to basically, believe it or not, they start to talk about James Webb immediately after that. And in this time was basically trying to get, they know that they need to do deep fields. So it is, it is designed mainly for uh, cosmology. So to get resolving power, to get a planet similar to Earth, and um, I think actually would be very challenging to, um, to, 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 to achieve. Uh, I think actually I'm gonna stop here at this stage and um, I think uh, because it's 2.30 and uh, if you have any questions, I will, uh, I would love to answer. Okay. All right. Yeah, so, yeah, thank you. This is very exciting and uh, very, yeah, another thing people didn't realize uh, the power of, of the uh, semiconductor chips and the involving uh, cosmology and uh, astrophysics and space sciences. This is a great example. Uh, so, yeah. And uh, so anybody had any question? I have some question, but you know, I wait for you. Okay, we have a, a Valeria, uh, she's a high school student. She's going to ask a question. Sure, I'd love to. So much for the explanations. I was wondering, what do you think is the most fascinating and unexpected discovery of the James Webb Space Telescope? Okay, so it is, believe it or not, okay, uh, so far, more than 500 publications been written based on the data from Gypsum. Uh, based on the data or based on the information we know about Gypsum, 500 publications, okay. Um, I think actually, okay, uh, like of course, like for example, this, one, this image I'm sharing now is basically, this is the first time we have a direct image for a planet. Okay, that's, that's that's this is actually is 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 major, right? Um, still, the science out there, like we're still collecting data, but it, we are very close to answer a very challenging questions we never been able to answer and like to 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 to, um, to answer. Typically in astronomy, the only way we answer, we have two ways to answer questions in astronomy. One way is I can basically have a model, you know, I can write equations, show that is okay, uh, how the star get form formatted or like how the planets actually get formatted. I can, I can model that, right? Or I can do direct observations and I can basically have um, um, an answer for that. And this is actually a very interesting James Webb was going to answer a very important questions. When is the first light come? Where come from? The evolutions of our galaxies, the original galaxies based on Hubble and now based on get confirmed by James Webb, they, they don't look similar to the galaxies we are seeing today. Uh, today. They are made completely unorganized, they don't have this, this super massive black hole in the middle like that. But this evolution, how it happened? And we answer very important also questions about uh, who come first, the stars or the galaxies? 
there is so many groundbreaking uh, uh, answers yet to come. And if you go to Google, okay, and search about, ask your questions, such in Google, uh, you're gonna find a very interesting stuff, okay. But I'm not I'm not in positions to, to comment on those. One of the basically publications is basically it's called Panic, uh, and you can basically go Google it and uh, maybe actually could Panic James Webb Space Telescope. But again, I'm, I'm not in a position to comment yes or no on it. I will let the experts and the scientists actually take their times basically comment on stuff like that, which is basically shows that is okay. Maybe actually um, um, it shows that is okay. Maybe we are seeing something older than the universe itself, but I will leave it at this. But I'm just basically, look, we are scratching the surface. We're just turning on James Webb, just turn on the switch. We are collecting data and it's very promising that is the data we are getting actually is gonna do a, a very, very interesting findings very soon. So stay tuned and basically Google will become your friend actually. Uh, Thank you so much. No problem. Thank you. Okay. Hello. Hello. Yeah. Uh, were there backup components? of the James Webb uh, telescope made? And could you uh, reassemble an entire uh, telescope yeah. on Earth? Sure. Um, the short answer, no, okay. And, uh, and the reason actually why no, okay. James Webb is not Hubble. Hubble was lucky mission, correct? First, for two reasons. The first reason is uh, it is basically to orbit Earth. So it's very close to Earth, okay? Second, Hubble, when we built Hubble, we have the, what's called the uh, space shuttle. Okay. So we can go like, remember actually when we launched Hubble, Hubble had a problem with chromatic aberrations. It cannot focus. Okay, like it was basically everyone was saying, oh my God, like we, we we're gonna, uh, but very easy. We took the space shuttle, we go to Hubble and replace, like fix the, the, fix the problem, come out with solutions and easy fix the problem. Then basically get upgraded twice or uh, three times. In matter of fact, actually last time they have to basically fix some of the computers. Like one of the computers actually, they have to replace the computers actually in Hubble. So, because actually we have a mechanism, we can go to Hubble and come the space shuttle. And immediately after we cancel the space shuttle, um, Hubble basically like now, we are waiting for it actually when, if something break in Hubble, there's nothing, we cannot do anything about it. That's basically, uh, next time we're gonna see Hubble, we, it, it, it's gonna be a fireball in the sky. Like some humans see Hubble will be a fireball in the sky. Um, so Hubble has this, Capabilities that is okay, like they have dual computers. This you know. James Webb, unfortunately, far, far, far away from Earth. We cannot basically, uh, in, in, in a point, we call it L2. Uh, maybe actually, I, I, maybe I have a, 
like this is a little bit complex. Uh, let me see if it is. In, uh, uh, maybe this is actually much better slide. Okay. Um, so uh, uh, James Webb is in an in a in a position way far from Earth. Okay, and four times farther than the Moon. That is completely different than um, Hubble. Hubble actually was rotating, orbiting around around Earth. So going to L2 and to fix something is basically it's, it's as hard. So the only instrument, like there is um, each instrument, uh, some of the instruments, the important ones, has duplicates, correct? Like, uh, for example, the uh, near cam, which we talked about, it has two cameras, two identical cameras, okay? And uh, fine guiding systems, it has two identical, uh, two identical cameras, okay? Because those actually are very important. But if something happened to James Webb, uh, that's 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 about it. Okay, we will not be able to um, maintain it, and unfortunately, will will go. But so far, it sounds like it's doing much better than everyone anticipated. I see, I saw publications about uh, expectations, and it basically matches expectation in everywhere in, in terms of sensitivity, in terms of um, calibrations. Uh, everything actually is flawless, almost correct, and. That could be also like, because it is get delayed is almost like by 10 years, believe it or not. So this, during this delays, what is the team, actually engineering team is gonna do? It's gonna do more testing. So they test, 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 test. And the last delays was for two and a half years, they discovered there is a, maybe a potential problem that is with the sun shield. And they delayed, because of this issue, they delayed the, the, the mission for two, uh, two and a half years before the current, uh, before the launch. And it sounds like it's being off, okay? Like you can see now, um, it's basically everything is basically flawless, basically pretty much. And it is even actually, they were planning actually it's officially to work for only five years because it is has enough fuel to maintain its uh, positions for um, five years. Even that, because actually it works like flawless, they basically extend, actually the promise actually they can survive for another 14 years and even more. So the redundancy, some of the equipment has some of the, one, uh, two cameras, has uh, one of the camera has um, two, cam uh, the fine gun system has two, the camera has two, okay. But everything has to survive basically the L2. And also, like we have been in L2 so many times, like this is not the only mission goes to this uh, uh, this spot. And what is special about this spot? It is basically uh, it is gravity uh, uh, stable, semi stable, or you can say stable. Basically, like if you if something here, it basically go in the same line with Earth and the objects and Sun. Would be in the same line. So even the Earth rotated around, rotating around Sun, this L2 point actually will also rotate in one line. So it maintain uh, its position. So you don't have to spend a lot of uh, fuel to basically maintain your uh, position. You go here and little bit just to do cor uh, maneuvers to correct your positions. 
and um, yeah, basically, like it is more complex than that. But if I have time, I can I can answer that. Uh, we have one uh, another question here. Sure. Okay, please. Hello. Hello. Hi, this is Manpreet. Uh, I have a quick question. So, how, like, we know the telescope. Uh, one of the main component in that is the mirror and which is like widely exposed in the space and space has debris. So I'm just wondering like how this mirror is designed to be protected against those debris. Excellent question. And uh, okay. Um, so need to differentiate between the debris around, uh, like around Earth, okay? Because we contaminated uh, as a human, contaminated the space around the Earth. Like if you are around Earth here, okay, it depends on which orbit you are, okay, and it's gonna get worse, correct? Because remember, for example, Star Starlink, okay, um, they, they are planning to have forty thousand satellite, correct? Uh, so basically, like, but typically, this debris, this is human-made debris. Let us talk about human-made debris. Human-made debris actually. Theoretically, over time, we go to uh, atmospheres, okay, and basically get burns, and we don't see it, the big, big ones. But the small ones is still there, okay? But you more farther away from Earth, the less debris there, okay? So we don't basically, um, we don't um, worry about human debris, okay? Once you go way, way far away from it. But the, there is another source of um, um, debris, but not the debris, you um, can call it actually, uh, uh, there is also like different materials. Okay, like so basically in this, in, in L2, you're gonna have um, very energetic materials, okay? It means that is okay, very energetic materials and dust. And also like molecules, okay. But the effect of molecules on the metals is is not much. But there are studies about the molecules on the sensors. Okay, of course, like if it's one of these molecules, energetic molecules, hit a sensor, you can maybe most of actually gonna lose a pixel or so. It depends on the energy of this molecules. We been in L two this area too many times, too many. So basically, there is a lot of um, models investigating okay, the debris in terms of a dust, okay, micro, micro, micro sized dust, okay, an effect on them. It is, it is affected, uh, uh, it is modeled and it has effect, it will have effect over the lifetime of a James Webb. But actually there is a lot of mitigations, okay? If there is some part of the mirror actually gets this dust, dust is big or one of the big cells, of course, like you can, you can do dithering, you can do like, because it's move, like this telescope can point very accurately into the sky, right? So you can move. So it's not gonna basically accumulate very fast to a degree that is okay, the, the James Webb actually will not be use, uh, usable. Over the lifetime of James Webb, which would be five to 10 years, okay? Could be enough damages, but it is, can be mitigated, okay? In matter of fact, actually, it happened. Like there's a, 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 a the, the part of the mirrors. If you Google your questions, in, 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 uh, if you Google your questions, you're gonna see that is okay. The mirror 
after the commission the mirrors and they align it because actually this is all this mirror has to be aligned in a microns okay they cannot even in, in the same wavelengths almost of uh, of the um, so basically like you have to move them the mirrors in microns um one of the mirrors get hit by one uh, by um by uh, micro uh, a micro uh, um, a, 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 a very small tiny dust which is okay like it's it's it's, it's part of the, uh, the, the the like it is basically it is exposed there's no protections okay but they basically we know what is the potential what is the probability of this dust hitting these cameras and hitting the sensors okay and it it take in, it, 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 it is in, uh, take into account all these factors to a degree that is um, uh, it will be uh, effectively operated uh, um, uh, operating until like, for the next 10 years. But at this uh, at L2, there is no human debris. Of course, like here, actually around Earth is, 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 is a nightmare. Now, actually we have so many missions over the last 60 years, it is contaminations, debris. It's 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 basically it's it's a very big problem actually, but of course like like it's much it's a, a very big problem. Even predicting where is this debris are is very challenging, very challenging. Even now, actually, until today, actually, people trying to basically say okay. Um, uh, DARPA, for example, like, uh, like uh, the militaries and those actually they have uh, uh, missions to basically track any debris actually less than one centimeter, right? Uh, up to centimeter. But less than that, actually, it's very hard to, 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 to track. So typically you design your spacecraft or something to basically withstand hit for objects less than a centimeter because anything actually bigger, you can track it. Maybe you can track it or like, you can basically avoid it to try to basically do maneuver to avoid it or something like that. Um, but in L2, we don't have this problem. We have only like the energetic dusts and molecules and gamma, uh, uh, like in, um, um, gamma uh, like uh, cosmic rays problems, which as I mentioned, it is counted for. Like when you know that some damages are gonna happen and there is mitigation plans for it. Like if it is coming to this, some pixel get hit or something, you can basically move little bits, like where you focus, okay? Like you move your images a little bit. They will announce it to um, the users and they said, okay, this pixel and pixel and pixel is broken. And when you plan your image, because you have to give the, um, where to point the, the where to point the, the like the telescope, and you can basically shift it a little bit here or there. Let's answer your question. Hey, uh, this, is, this is a great, uh, great question. So, any question? More question? How about you? You're good. Okay. Uh, I do have uh, two questions here from uh, Randall. The first question is: How expensive is the sensor, and how involved is the calibration process? And his next question is, how long does it take to acquire an image? Okay, okay. Um, so the, for the price, I, like, uh, you know, uh, I, 
those will be like um, remember actually in uh, in semiconductor okay you guys actually were talking about tsmc tsmc at the end of the day sell what sell something called wafer okay so what this wafer is basically a circle like I, i'm sure that is, all of you guys actually saw it somehow uh, a wafer is um this um uh, a plane of like a circle plane of silicon uh, of silicon which basically we build our chips on top of it right so when you go to tsmc tsmc will charge you per wafer right like this is a wafer right say for example actually i'm just absorbing a number okay don't quote me or just assume the wafer cost you ten thousand dollars okay so it depends on how much uh how many chip you can build in this wafer right you can build a thousand so basically uh, the cost of a bear 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 chip would be a uh, like ten dollar right and of course i have to package it blah 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 test it and stuff like that so those sensors actually first of all actually they are big second actually they are not standard like tsmc like if you want to basically uh tsmc is doing like or like those companies they are doing amazing job actually to reduce the prices for the old technologies right now actually this actually non-standard technologies this is actually has to be done in some some labs somewhere okay and uh, they have to build this crystal so it is i will be surprised actually if this one 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 chip actually will be i'm throwing a number i i don't know right it is would be in the 50k or something like that Okay, remember you have a wafer and when at this size, actually maybe you can have like a 10, 10, only 10 chip. Okay, so the cost actually only for the wafer coming from TSMC would be very expensive. Plus actually this is low, um, what's called low uh, volume products. The volume product is very dangerous, uh, very, very expensive. Um, we enjoy our cell phone uh, for a thousand dollar um, if, because actually Apple sell uh, 50 million or 100 million of those, okay? So they amortize the initial cost of these wafers. Like um, when you go to TSMC, they charge you two things. One is the cost of what's called the masks. The, like, because you, you have to basically build these chips actually by the positions, like you deposit layers after layers after layers and very, very lengthy process, right? And TSMC, when you go to TSMC, they basically charge you uh, this mask cost, correct? And the mask cost actually for old technologies is cheap, very cheap. But for new technologies, it's basically is huge, okay? Or like non-standard technologies, it's, it could be huge. Like some of the technologies we are enjoying, CPU, Pentium CPUs or something like that, uh, like a, a AM, like an AMD or like Nvidia graphics card or something like that. One of those uh, edge of the technology, the five nanometers and stuff like that. The mask cost actually could be in the range of tens of millions. Imagine that is okay. You want to do a five nanometer chip, for example, okay? And you have to give TSMC two two cost: cost per wafer and cost for the mask. And it is they will charge you say thirty million dollar for the for the mask. Right, so and basically you wanna sell 10, 10, 10, 10 bars because actually you do not do something in space or something like that, correct? And we don't build. You wanna do super duper fastest computer ever 
and I want to send it to space, right? Using the latest technology node, five nanometers, something like that. This will cost you right away $50 million, right? $30 million plus the wafer cost, okay? For very, very, very few parts. So that's why you actually, like in the industry, we don't, um, um, uh, so we don't basically try to avoid this deep nodes, except for this guy's actually high volumes, uh, smaller nodes, okay? Uh, we're basically we're trying to avoid going to non-standard flows. Okay, you can go to TSMC to do whatever you want. Give them the, the masks, they will go and produce whatever you want. You can do CCD, you can do some whatever you want. Okay, so you're gonna do it for you. you. Just give them what you want to do. Okay, and they will build it for you. So uh, I don't, I don't. So for the price, I don't know the difference, but it has to be very like this. Actually, sensor has to be very expensive. If you go to the like a flare, uh, like flare actually doing these cameras, infrared, one of the top infrared cameras uh, uh, manufacturers, you see that is okay. Very low resolution uh, VGA sensors, okay. It range from the for literally from the ten thousand to hundred thousand dollars for these cameras, okay. And um, but. The like the sensors we are using here for James Webb, it is even that is actually uh, space grade and military grade, like space grade. Space grade, and if you if you are in, in the industry of semiconductor, you know that it's space and um, space and militaries, those actually have a special treatments, correct? Like this is you cannot use a chip used for um, um, for your cell phone and put it in in a in a uh, satellite and send it to 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 space, okay? Or like you put it in Jim's web, it will never happen, right? We have to use a special semiconductors, okay, used for space and military, military because actually it has to be more robust. Space actually has to be more uh, like uh, robust, okay, and of course it has to be. The temperature range has to be much higher, much bigger, and it also like it has radiation hardening, right? Like because there is a lot of radiations in this um, in uh, in space, which is in Earth actually we don't suffer from this, right? And also like in Earth actually, if you have a cell phone and you lose your uh, your your like, your life not does not depend on it. That's why we created in 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 consumer electronics we created what's called like automotive, because. Yeah, now actually I'm driving and this, so automotive grades, um, it become much higher than consumer grade uh, electronics. Then basically, of course, like the aerospace and um, and, uh, and the military, those actually much higher. So I will not be basically surprised if this thing actually like in, a, in, in tens of thousands of dollars, maybe much more, right? Typically, because it is low volume, this is only two cameras and Norso Grumman actually uh, built it but actually supervised by uh, university, uh, uh, by Arizona uh, State University. And uh, of course supervised by, GB, by GBL and NASA. So I think actually this cameras has to be in tens of millions. Like so many people actually touch it, okay? And it's, it has to suffer from no volume. Again, if this iPhone, you sell two, two iPhones, you develop all the iPhone, but you sell only two, these iPhones will cost you like a, more than a hundred million dollars, at least. Actually, no, actually much, much, much higher than that, hundred million dollars. Now, of course, like much higher than that because all the engineering cost and all this stuff. So it's the same thing, okay? This is low volume, 
Hisense are, are very specific uh, technologies. Okay, it's not common. It will be it will be uh, will be very costly. For the iPhone example, actually, um, it will be billions of dollars. Okay, imagine that as you go buy a cell phone for five billion dollars or something like that. The next question is how involved is the calibration process, and then is how long does it take to acquire an image? Okay, correct. So uh, calibration. Um, so um, um, James Webb basically, um, there's, okay, there is, of course, like uh, some, uh, like they did a lot, a lot uh, like the last six months, they spent it actually in doing um, uh, what's called um, commissioning and activation and calibrations and testing, basically pretty much actually testing. And uh, um, the, how long actually to, acquire an image, this is depends on the science, the science team. The science team knows what is okay, what is, he knows the capabilities, like there's a very interesting software, they release it even to the public, actually you can download that, but it's, it will, like you have to basically know so many things about the, the instrument to use it. Uh, so it's not easy to use, but imagine that you use it, okay, you know that is okay, I need to basically my focus on this object, and you know that is okay. The 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 what is the AB number for this? And based on that, you can you can design the the uh, um, the um, uh, what's called the you can design the um, uh, exposure time. But after you do the other exposure time, there is something called that also like the shift out time. Shift out time means that is okay. You take the, you take the, like you expose, then basically you have to shift out the, you take this image out, right? And um, um, I think actually, like I don't, I don't exactly remember the line. It basically was 20 millisecond per line for, 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 for shift, something in this range. Don't quote me, you can, but this is the range. And uh, for 2000 line, it takes a long time, correct? So even actually this was a problem for very bright items, something like planets, for example, right? So the way actually they solve this problem because they don't wanna basically um, saturate the, the sensors and could damage the sensor and stuff like that. So what they do is instead of actually shifting the whole entire image, they shift only the lines they are interested in. So that basically one technique to basically don't cause the exposure for a long time, okay? You just basically expose it for a short time, but actually shift the, um, shift the, the, the required lines only. Don't shift the whole entire picture because it could take so long time to, um, you know, um, um, shift out the, the images. Um, does it, did I answer the questions or? Yeah, yeah, very good, thank you. And the, the next one is how long does it take to acquire an image? You say it's faster than half of it, how fast? Yeah, it's basically because it is much more sensitive. Okay, it's, you can think of like see like a 12, like uh, it is a much much faster means that is okay because it has bigger, bigger, uh, bigger mirror. So it can collect more, uh, more photons from the same object means that is okay, I can, and also like the, the sensitivity. I think actually, look, it is, uh, in terms of sensitivity, it is, um, 
like based on the numbers we see, it's basically like almost like a more than uh, like a order of magnitude, like a 10x um, faster than 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 Hubble. Um, also, like I don't confuse this number, but based on like 12 hours, get you the same quality of image as two, two weeks. That is basically in terms of uh, sensitivity and uh, and um, acquiring the images. Of course, like there is a time actually it takes for the telescope to point into the sky. Like you say, okay, I wanna basically point now into this specific object. And of course, like this is, okay, you have to go and align the telescope into this object. So this is actually takes some times to do it. Nowadays, actually they change the plan. That is okay. They, they collect all the subjects or required for a specific plan, for a specific, like if it's the, the, basically if they are they don't want to basically you have a telescope it get basically moved by uh, fuel and reaction wheels and so they don't want to basically move the telescope actually so much right so they want to basically minimize these movements okay because once you fire um, the reaction wheels I'm not sure if you, uh, you know uh, reaction wheels is something like a gyros correct you turn it up actually and the scope actually will will basically act, right? Again, it's the movement. And they have many of those, and basically they can uh, move the... But those reaction wheels have a problem, actually. When you fire them for a long time, you have to basically use fuel to basically stabilize. Otherwise, basically, the momentum will carry over. So you have to basically uh, fire the fuel. So there's basically... It takes a lot, uh, it takes some, um, they want to basically preserve, of course, they have to preserve the fuel because they want to basically extend the mission time from five years to 10 years. So basically, like, they want to minimize where the point. So basically, like, now from one, um, one image to the other image, they have to do the housekeeping. They have to basically move, uh, uh, align, direct, and lock into the subjects you wanna you wanna um, you wanna you, you wanna um, observe, and after that, basically, also like you have to uh, based on exposure time, it is purely science based on the science, and they have to basically take all these images, okay, and send it uh, to, to to Earth for basically integrations and analysis and stuff like that, and of course, like it it doesn't have infinite amount of memory so it has so you have to basically build until you fill the the, the the memory and basically you send it so you can you can basically acquire more images right? I'm not sure if that's answer your questions yeah uh, very good very good yeah very interesting uh, one thing you mentioned uh, TSMC I think you are just using you are using as example right because I think uh, you mentioned North Groman uh i don't know if they actually manufacturing the sensor they probably assemble it mm -hmm. uh, i think exactly. they have their own uh, uh no actually like um, um i don't know i cannot comment but if if you're asking me as my personal information uh i think maybe they have their own uh, because they are not in the lead technology node like if if you tell me that is go and do five nanometer chip of course like i have to do the same thing. Okay. 
but for those, I think actually those actually will be using very and like um, much much earlier uh, technologies, and maybe actually they have their own intern. I, I don't know. I, I'm just basically thinking my mind now. Uh, they have their own. Um, I will not be surprised. Actually, they have their own DC graphs and old uh, technology DC graphs, and they built these chips in house. Yeah, uh, according this to is the... basically like it is. Uh, remember, it is uh, up the sensor itself. It has this layer, which basically it's, uh, it's this is basically it's a chemical process, right? Like the layer of uh, uh, mercury, cadmium tool, right? Actually, is it's just a, a, a crystal. Then basically. You have to basically do this depositions uh, like layers, okay? Then in here actually you have you have a trap for the electrons. Then basically the analog readout. The analog readouts actually this is an analog components. I will you don't literally it's just some amplifiers, okay? Those actually uh, can be basically built by very low technology nodes, right? By like. A, Hundred, maybe hundred ninety. I, I don't know, like some some number, some some old old technology. And those actually, like some universities actually have 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 this equipment actually in house. The yeah. about amplifiers and stuff like that actually in house. Ah, yeah. So, so I'm not surprised actually actually like a, maybe Nelson Grumman. Um, but by the way, actually like the sensor is not from Nelson Grumman. Nelson Grumman is basically is the contractor for the whole entire camera, right? Like the the chassis, there is the, like everything. Uh, the the sensor itself actually is uh, I think it's teradyne. Teradyne, yes. Yeah. I think it's, it's uh, one is teradyne, one is uh, Raytheon. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, because uh, this is from NASA website, they said both uh, were made in California. Yeah. In, uh, so uh, uh, yeah, so teradyne. Teradyne actually is only doing the sensors, okay. And teradyne, of course, like one of the top. But, but, in, Military, military. So you don't you don't think they actually outsource uh, to like a TSMC? They actually build in house. I don't think actually uh, those actually will uh, remember actually like the computers and all the stuff uh, in uh, in James Webb, and the whole entire military actually suffer from uh, uh, not only the military, the military and aerospace suffer from the old technology nodes, right? That's right. And uh, especially in NASA, NASA basically um, to send a board, a, 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 a printed circuit board into space, it has to go through a very, very, very complex process and commissioning and testing and qualification and certification. And this could take years. So the worst thing actually scenario for like a, a, some uh, the program managers actually in NASA, it's okay. Go actually, we need to have a computer system to do to basically maintain the something, whatever it is. And the worst case scenario basically we say, okay, what, uh, where I'm gonna get this? The best case scenario, he will go and find a recycle board from some other missions. It happened all the time, by the way. It happened all the time. Like for example, actually perseverance, this Mars mission. Okay, they have a their computer system. Okay, they basically. Also, those very you, you, you can see these patterns. That is, you can, everyone is using a very old, like the very, very old technology. So, like, you, you assume that is okay. Like, this guy is actually using the greatest, and but unfortunately, no. Because if if you have a processor can do the job, they they use it, right? They don't run behind the uh, uh, the the latest and greatest. 
but I think actually um, for this analog component, you don't need to, to, do it, uh, to do it externally. You have to do it, it's basically, um, you can do it in-house. That's my, my, my yeah, assumption. I, actually, they are talking about either biking computer or it's actually one bit computer. <laughs> you can do great jobs, you know. Yeah, exactly. Like, you know, you, typically it is just a control algorithm. Yeah, like, yeah. you know, and basically communication and control algorithm. Like most of the, like, the, the nightmare actually is a communication, right? So the basically the, com the communication modules, typically like, you know, if you wanna basically plan a, 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 plan a, a mission, especially like the low, cost, like low, um, low budget missions, you don't wanna basically go and basically spend the money in designing uh, a new communication module, modem or something like that, right? So you try to basically recycle something available, okay, certified and qualified, and put it in, design the mission around it, actually, metal effect. Yeah. Some of the mission, actually, like that, actually. Like, uh, they have, uh, um, I can basically, they basically, like, like they try to basically, like put, the, like, put the budget into whatever you need to do, and instead of actually design, redesigning something, you can, you can leverage from somewhere. Yeah, that's why actually uh, just right before pandemic, we have a speaker from NASA. He was a manager for uh, electronic packaging. And uh, it was, oh, uh, and of course, exactly what you said about the radiation hardening, uh, all kind of, it take time. Uh, yeah. And the, 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 I think they are trying to do is cuts, C-O-T-S, you know, cut yeah. from, from the shelf, you know, that's uh, to cut the cost. Uh See, actually, like you hear about this ingenuity. Ingenuity is a, a helicopter on Mars these days, right? Yeah. So, because it is not critical, um, if imagine that as we send these helicopters to Mars and basically didn't work, no perseverance, the mission will stay as is, and everything is basically will be happy, right? So, what they end up actually, they put aboard literally of the shelf OEM board anyone of you guys actually can buy it and use it as this is a computer for the for um, um it's basically snapdragon uh snapdragon qualcomm snapdragon processor and they use it for uh, uh for, uh, for 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 ingenuity because actually they were planning only to fly it five times only okay and they said okay if we get one flight is okay and even if it didn't fly okay we just to try it, right? But amazingly, the the helicopters actually is flying for almost like, uh, for almost like more than a year now, okay, and didn't break. But they have, of course, like um, they have to get the expertise of the people working in aerospace to basically to encapsulate the the the, the board properly. So basically, and basically. In interspace, actually, like, there is a lot of uh, electrostatic uh, discharge and buildups, and they basically there is a lot of techniques in how to protect your cables. Your you basically discharge the um, um, electrostatics and stuff like that, and and you get help from, of course, like you know one of those um, from NASA, and um, they build a very. Um, <laughs> Using consumer electronics actually survived for one year, but of course this is was not non-mission non critical. No one will ever in NASA will take a decision to use consumer electronics in a mission. Never, it will never happen. 
especially for the critical, like uh, something critical, like communication, for example, communication is very critical. Uh, so uh, the main computers or something that they can have redundancy, but you know both of them they have to basically um, radiation hardening uh, uh, um, has to be space um, space um, qualified, very space qualified. Now you mentioned this uh, redundancy. Actually, you answered my. I didn't even ask, but you, you mentioned it. There is the uh, the um, you have two, you know, two two uh, sensors for each. Yeah, that's yeah. very important, especially yeah. for this uh, long term mission as you, you just mentioned. Yeah. So, oh, you you about to say something? No, no. I should, I, I was basically yeah. I was uh, saying that is yes. That's, that's true, especially in in L two. We cannot basically fix it. Like if, if this thing actually broke, it broke, right? So yeah, actually, of course, you know, uh, I don't know about L two, but you know, the uh, I understand what you talk. Uh, you talk about the shuttle being discontinued and the issue for uh, the Hubble. Uh, but in AIWA, people are actually talking about on orbit surfacing, on orbit surface. So maybe they're more for. Other thing near near <laughs> Earth. Yeah, typically near Earth, this type of uh, missions is near Earth yeah. uh, missions, right? Like um, thousand miles, two thousand miles. Okay, uh, orbits. Okay, yes, it's still so, But more than that, I think actually it's pretty it's pretty challenging. Yeah, of course they're talking about applying artificial intelligence. You know, instead of you know sending humans. Yeah, everyone now actually AI actually become a fashion and anyone want to use AI to um, to uh, to solve this problem. They assume that this AI is going to solve everything. But, um, well, I even saw topic. I even saw a presentation paper, of course, on Earth's orbit. They were talking about the Mars orbit, you know. So, well, I don't know. This is a bit too too much. Uh, it's, it's just research. It's just research. Yeah, it's research. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Great. Uh, I think, oh, sorry, uh, this is way over time, but it is so exciting and uh, you are uh, great. Uh, 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 you are a very good speaker and uh, this is a very exciting topic. And, and uh, you, you actually brought a very important key issue of, of this kind of thing it is the semiconductor and, uh, you know, it's everywhere. You know, you do it in AI, uh, you know, chips, in the, even sensors. So I think that alone is a great topic, especially for space application. That's another a big area. So hopefully in the future, you, you have time, you can come back, you know. Absolutely, yeah. I would love to talk about uh, like, you know, my, uh, my specialties, which basically like, uh, uh, I can talk about uh, AI and the semiconductors because actually I, I and basically like I, I spent uh, quite a bit of time actually designing cameras, believe it or not. Uh, and, uh, and then after that, actually I do AI, okay. Uh, so. Yeah, yeah. Actually, you mentioned Nvidia is very big in AI chips, and the other yeah. thing I noticed you mentioned, especially echo what you said that it doesn't have to use state-of-the-art technology for things. If you don't have to, for example, you talk about the filter, optical filter using the wheel. Yeah. Actually, you know, of course, you know, these days you don't have to use wheels. You know, uh, wheel wheel is very basic. You, you can doing some nonlinear optical device, and uh, you can right. yeah. you know, electrically. You know, do 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 the filtering, but you know, if you can do it cheaply and reliably using mechanical wheels, and uh, why not? <laughs> is uh, it is very reliable. You know. Yeah. 
Yeah, and there's also a very, a very advanced uh, uh, optics research actually happening now, and you're gonna see it actually in the next five years. Oh, okay. um, yeah, optics actually will, will like the, the, the dependence on this lens, the technology of lens actually is gonna be obsolete in very soon. Maybe actually, like one time, maybe I can um, speak to you guys actually about that. Yeah, yeah. If when you, when you have time, you know that's a very interesting topic as well. Yeah, optics in space, you know, development, you know, something like that. Great. This is wonderful, fantastic. You know, so really highly appreciated, and uh, um, uh, it's just fantastic. And we learn more about the and the point spread function. That's just a very interesting thing. Okay, yeah. so uh, uh, so that's conclude the uh, uh, the uh, the. Uh, this event today and uh, thanks a lot for Salam uh, for your wonderful uh, presentation. So stay in touch, you know, it's wonderful to know you and uh, stay in touch. Thank you. All right. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. So everyone, that's uh, uh, the uh, finalize our uh, uh, town hall meeting today. So stay in touch. We have more exciting event coming up. Uh, September, September 20th, we are going to have a talk on space policy about the uh, Asia leading uh, space uh, development. And then we have uh, September 26th, we have a watch party for the NASA DART mission, the first ever uh, manned uh, spacecraft deliver, uh, you know, design, uh, um, I mean, spacecraft designed by man hit a near Earth asteroid in order to um, study how in the future we can defend our uh, uh, solar system and the Earth, planetary defense. And uh, in, on sep September 28th in um, uh, Kelsey Long Beach, we'll have the very exciting talk, uh, the GIS, Geo uh, Geographical Information System, how to utilize drones and satellite for imaging for uh, Los Angeles city development and uh, emergency purposes. And October 1st, uh, we'll have a quantum physics talk. Uh, it's not on, you know, too much detail. It's for everybody. It's a, a fun talk about uh, philosophy and a fun story about quantum physics. October 6th in downtown LA, we'll have a space architecture uh, event. Uh, and it's in a, a very modern company, which designed many uh, famous uh, uh, stadiums or buildings. Uh, it's uh, called the uh, Water P. Moore. Uh, it's uh, going to be a fun event. And October 12th, we have a 3D printing uh, and a calculus event. Then November 12th, we have the um, uh, sustainable aviation and the electrical aircraft event. Uh, so please stay tuned. So thank you so much again. Uh, thank you, everyone. So uh, have a great weekend uh, and enjoy the, the rest of the day. Appreciate it. Bye bye.